Yo. Whoa, welcome back from, I, you know, spring break. Uh, and I actually had an, a real spring break, but I thought about maybe trying to pull some sort of like, we were off for two weeks. I was like, maybe we should like revamp the audio at the beginning and like try some new stuff. And But you know what? I don't want to mess with our brand. I think we got a good thing going. And, uh, if, yeah, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I was in Florida, which is the Florida of the United States. Um, <laughs> and Look, I'm not anti-mainstream media or anything weird like that. I don't have any like, you know, I'm not, that's not me, but it was not wild. Like I thought it was going to be no masks anywhere and free for all and just like lawlessness and, and craziness and streets filled with maskless mobs just, <laughs> and it was no different than Santa Monica, California, which I'd, I I had been to the week. Oh, California's already wild too. Yeah, California's ah. the, the California. Well, it's Maybe funny. I, it I say that because I live near Huntington Beach, and people say that Huntington Beach is the Florida of California, but it's man, like stuff is some stuff in the in the country's wild. Some stuff is not wild. Some stuff is mellow. Some stuff's cool. Could be anywhere, um, but you know what? Uh, it's spring break spring break forever and uh i had a good time and now we're back and we have a awesome episode today this was really fun to record but before we get into the interview is there anything that we need to Bo, Revelation Records fans, this is Joe from Hellminded Records, and I'm about to drop some info on some of our more recent releases, including the return of New Jersey hardcore legends No Escape, Massachusetts melodic punks Owe the Humanity, and South Philly Thrasher's Honey. Kicking things off, we have the crushing new six-song 12-inch EP by seminal New Jersey hardcore unit No Escape, featuring Tim Singer of Dead Guy, Kissing Goodbye and Bitter Branches, and Stephen Cordello of Turning Point. The first pressing is sold out on the Hellminded website, but you can still grab the few remaining copies at Rev HQ on exclusive yellow vinyl. Next up is the Hellminded self-titled debut LP by Massachusetts melodic quintet Oh the Humanity. This 11-song shredder is for fans of Strike Anywhere, A Wilhelm Scream, and Propagandi. Dropping April 16th, this high-speed shredder is now available for pre-order on our website in multiple color variants. And finally, coming late May, we have the long-awaited debut LP by South Philly crossover thrashers Honey. Featuring Jay Laughlin of Turning Point and Godspeed on guitar and vocals, this is for fans of Power Trip, Mind Force, and Iron Reagan. Pre-orders open late April. We've got a ton more in store for 2021. Stay tuned to our Instagram at Hellminded Records for more info on future releases and use the code where it went on our website for 10% savings on your next order. So that was a uh, from our friends uh, at Hellminded Records. Uh, there's a code there. I have been listening to that new No Escape, and it is awesome. Uh, the, like, if you don't have it, I don't. In fact, I think they're all sold out of it. Rev might have it, maybe not. Uh, and and uh, they have a new a new record. By the time you hear this, uh, the band Oh the Humanity from New England. They're more of like a melodic punk. You know, if you're into like Propagandi and sort of the 
the fat record side of things you'll enjoy. They're really good. And um, there's a discount code. You have no reason not to. Honey LP coming out soon, which is going to be awesome. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, hell-minded. Bit of both. Bit of both. The one-up discography coming soon. Yes. It actually went to the plan. Uh, layout looks amazing. Thanks to Jason. Thank you. Did a cover art reveal. And um, there's a bunch of other stuff coming. Some new bands, some discographies. So be on the lookout. Uh, other stuff. What do we have? Oh, when you're listening to this, speaking of spring break, I believe these uh, the spring break t-shirts will be up for only like 48 more hours. After spring more break. Yeah, uh, this um, awesome shirt that our straight edge friend Jason Mazzola designed for us. Bit of bow. Bit of bow, yep. Jason Mazzola. While he was high. Hey, listen, I got I have I have a weird um, admission. Okay. I'm just kidding, Jason. You weren't high. No, I wasn't high when I drew that. I don't like Beavis. But and I had butthead. fun doing it. I don't like Beavis and Butthead. Really? But do you like the characters of Beavis and Butthead on a shirt? I I will proudly wear the shirt that you designed. I think that's that it's, where I'm at. It's cool and funny and nostalgic. Yeah. And it's uh it's just a cool design. I didn't like Beavis and Butthead as a television show growing up. I thought it was fucking annoying. I hated their dumb voices. I hated the way, like, I liked Mystery Science Theater 3000. If we're going to talk about people, like, talking through a movie, you know what I mean? Yeah. It was a little bit more low-key, and I was into some of that, like, black and white sci-fi type vibe that they had. But I just didn't like the, the, I I just, but Beavis and Butthead, it's not for me. We're the same age. We're around the same age, right? Did it age well? well? you're, You're older than me. But yes, we're about oh, to say damn, Jason. <laughs> I didn't know that because did I was a huge, damn. I was a huge fan. But see, it came out in like 1993. I was 12, so like yeah. to me, it was like the most cutting edge. Like I liked Aeon yeah. Flux, and I liked some of the MTV like cartoon well, Liquid Television. Yeah, I liked some of that stuff. I do like King of the Hill. Okay, I appreciate that. Okay. Um, but Beavis yeah, the and early Butthead, seasons were really good. Beavis and Butthead just it didn't do it for me, man. But Fair I wonder, enough. like, did it age well? Because I watched, I no, did I watch the so. movie um, recently and with my son, who's almost 15, and he didn't seem to find it. He was like, it was okay. Well, like, let me ask you this. Do you like the first season, maybe two seasons of The Simpsons now? The first season, not so much. The second season's right. okay, but it didn't yeah. hit its stride till the third season. Right. It starts. What to season are they up to right now? Twenty um, eight. Okay. Thirty two or three. And in yeah. fact, we're recording this on Sunday. The episode is that today's episode is called "Panic on the Street." Oh, that's right. I don't. I don't. I don't like that graphic either. I'm. I'm sorry that I'm a fucking naysayer. I saw that graphic. I thought it was a dumb cultural mashup joke. And then somebody else sent it in a group chat and I saw, I read it and I was like, I don't like this. I don't, I'm I don't. I, Benedict I'm, Cumberbatch is the voice. So Dr. Strange. Cumber, Benedict uh, Cumber, Cumberbund? Cumberbund. Yeah. Um, I'll watch it. It was I'm just a, watch it. it was a fun spring break shirt. I yes, had fun drawing I, it. It's yeah, silly. It's cool as fuck. Yeah. Thanks to everyone that ordered it. And I also yeah. just wanted to bid up everyone that ordered the um, Ray and Purcell shirt. Because they made their way to their respective homes. So thanks everyone that worked with me on that, which was 
obviously Sammy, Rev, Ray Porcel, and Dylan. I thought that was cool to work yeah. on something. I can't wait to get mine. The purple, yeah, com- that's the my purple bad. comfort colors looks great. Thank you. I haven't it, seen it. It looks awesome. I, you know, <laughs> it'll go out in the mail tomorrow for you both. I apologize, <laughs> I apologize but I had fun doing uh, it. So, so thank you. So, um, I also wanted to uh, give a bit of bow to everybody who tuned in to the live stream. Yes. Um, yeah. on Friday, uh, I had a lot of fun, and I got to talk to Enoch afterwards, and. He really enjoyed the conversation and uh, you know, it seemed like even those live streams are weird. Cause even if there's not a lot of people in there, it ends up a lot of people end up watching. Like I saw that there was a good amount of views. So it seems like people dug it. And uh, I look forward to one of you guys doing one next month. Maybe. Yeah. I, maybe. I've, I've had a, I have a list in my head of people that I would like to talk to and it's, kind of like um not like like we always have said not the usual suspects you know of course i could just not to brag but be like hey my friend porcel do you want to do this or something but we've had porcel on a few times we don't you know we, let's do someone else so mm-hmm. I, I got some ideas um that are still rev related um we'll see how it goes yeah Cool. I enjoyed watching that, Greg. You did a great job. Yeah, with that. yeah, it was cool. It, I I actually watched it and listened to it while I was uh, repairing some holes in a wall in my office. So it was nice. Awesome background. Yeah, he's, um, he's just uh, Enoch was really cool to talk to, and in our our guest today, to, uh, I guess maybe before we started rolling, or I don't know if it's in the interview or not. Uh, we talked about them playing with Scream, and yeah. he said all his great memories from, uh, you know, playing with Scream involve uh, Skeeter Enoch. Yeah. So um, we didn't talk about what we're doing this episode yet, though. That's all right. We'll get there. Okay. I'm uh, sorry. I'll tell you that, but <laughs> <laughs> it's not a it's not a surprise. There's not a lot of surprises in life. So all right, fair enough. I wanted to what send uh hold on. I want to send a bit of bow to my friends at Shelter Farm Sanctuary. I just that's why I was in Florida, um, spending some time with them. Mike is a supporter of the pod, and uh, Mike. I had some good times. I ate, listen, I ate at a vegan hot dog cart owned by a member of the band reversal of man that is some wild shit and it was this amazing amazing wild vegan hot dog it was a great time i love hanging out at the farm and uh it it was just cool hanging out with like 150 vegans for a weekend like it kind of had a bit of a, a effect on my compassion and uh kindness i think so and i also want to send a bit of bow to my friend (laughs) my friend uh little chris who's also a friend of the pod um that's it just want to send some love to little chris can i ask you a question go the hot dog cart yeah when they have these vegan hot dog carts are they their own proprietary vegan hot dog that they make or are they using like no field roast or tofurkey no. or what uh, they I don't I don't want to divulge the brand that they used but they did not uh this particular hot dog cart used they used a brand that's not common by the way so it's not really something that you can just go to Publix and buy 
or wherever your okay. sheets or whatever I love your vegan okay. hot dogs. Yeah. Uh, okay. You want me? I'm just gonna tell you what was on it. Carolina Hopkins. barbecue, Carolina barbecue oh. sauce, macaroni and cheese, coleslaw, and potato chips on top of a fucking hot dog. It was fucking banging. Sounds good. And that's one where you probably only need to eat one hot dog. Oh, well, I ate two. You better believe I had two. And this is the the um the name of the cart is Nah Dogs, N-A-H Dogs. And they're from Tampa, Florida. Tampa. So if you're ever in Tampa and you're at an event and you see Nah Dogs, I highly recommend it. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, nice. just give them a little bit of shine. I yeah. love I love, yeah, I, I love and I told uh I told them this. I love it when especially old hardcore kids, but any hardcore punk kid, when they own or start a business and you can tell that there's like punk ethics involved, Mm -hmm. agreed. whether it's from their marketing, their merch, their merch is always on point, dude. Like there's another um, vegan deli in St. Pete's, Florida called Golden Dinosaurs. And they make like bandanas and you know like just cool shirts so it's it's always cool to see old hardcore punk kids doing something cool and and um i really really appreciate it do you know where yeah. reversal of man got their name from no jason rom no it's, it's a frail reference i think it was either like oh. some something in the I, I don't think frail of a song but like either a lyric or a writing in one of their seven inches where they'd have all that like you know literature mm -hmm. they there's something that said reversal of man and that was where they took it so nice it you know okay. we love i'm glad that we both love that like early screamo greg i we're both fans of that kind of era that like not quite mid 90s like 93 to 95 yeah uh, screamo i think for a while when i got really into like the rev stuff i kind of brushed it aside but in later years like especially frail mm -hmm. acknowledging how important they were to my growth as like a hardcore kid mm -hmm. um and then listening back and it brought back a lot of good memories and i yeah. thought the music was cool it's good yeah. it's something you know uh that i think i pre i almost appreciate more now than i did then jason do you have any yeah. other bit of bows before we kick this interview Bit of bow to David Foster for joining us for this conversation. You were talking about hardcore kids that open up businesses. Yeah. And he owns and opened up High Point Barbershop. Oh, nice. Here in Richmond and is very successful with it. So um, bit of bow to High Point Barbershop. Check him out. If you come here for United Blood when it happens in the future, stop by. Yeah, get cleaned up. United, uh, United Blood. Um, I only went the one time to when Count Me Out played, and what a awesome fest! I've, I've never had, been really. I've never been. So it's it had a, it had a cool vibe. Now you got to keep in mind, Dave, like he mentioned, you know, he's a Wilkes Bear guy. Like he was. So it, to me, it was. And I'm not going to sit here and say I'm a I'm a, a professional fest goer. I've, I've been to this is hardcore bunch, <laughs> and I've been to um, I've been to. Uh, united blood and then of course you know posi numbers and all the ones from back in the day but i thought united blood really had a, a lot of that same feel and spirit of the the posi numbers in a way yeah um, and i think foster you know having part in it had has a lot to do with that yeah you know, and it was you just know, like kick it sorry 
No, you know who has been go? a United Blood? Who? My good wife Heather. She. Oh, really? She flew to United Blood when she was like a teenager, because she is down for the core. Which uh, which year did yeah. she go? Do you remember? I don't. I don't know. I, I okay. I didn't, I didn't know her when she was a teenager. Okay. Fair. <laughs> it, it, um, you know, it's it's just I always see the lineup, and I'm always like, oh, and uh, you know, it's 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 a little bit of a hike for me, but to get down there, but I would love to go again. I would love to play it someday. So Dave, I'll play solo. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but I would love, like, it's just a cool, it's just a cool vibe. And Dave has been a friend of mine too for now. I'm thinking like, tw- you know, 20 years I've known the guy since Wilkes bear and, and uh, it was Wilkes just bar? really nice. Wilkes bar bear. Barry. Um, a lot of memories of cafe Metro and, and Wilkes bar. Um, you know, one up played there a ton. Uh, and, you know, Dave Foster was always there and frostbite and uh, cold world when they started out and he was, yeah. in. so just, you know, it was cool. It was great to have him on here. Well, Agreed. let's, uh, let's kick it. What do you say? I agree. All right. off talking about yeah kick it kick it jason thanks everybody for joining us we're going to be talking with richie birkenhead about the underdog demos this episode and richie i wanted to ask you about the transition from the numbskulls to underdog and how many songs carried over that's that's a very uh that's a very good question um the numbskulls uh started as as a band that was kind of had like an ongoing identity crisis you know were we did we want to be a skate rock band did we want to be a a posi core band did we want to just be a, a you know good old new york hardcore thrash band um numbskulls was born of one of my high school classmates a guy named scott cleaver who later went on to play in a sort of different music scene was in a band called surgery and some other stuff and drummer from gainesville florida uh greg our drummer and Danny Durella, the original incarnation of uh, the Numbskulls. Actually, before Danny Durella, Scott Cleaver played guitar, George DePiro played bass, um, and and uh, and Greg played drums. The band sort of, a la Spinal Tap, kept having like exploding members that would sort of rotate, and uh, and the morphing into Underdog happened when um, Russ. Russ and I um, always kind of bonded over skateboarding in the in the hardcore days, and and you know even even before um, you know well before uh, the Numbskulls you know became True Blue, which became Underdog. So he and I would always we would very often be the only two guys with skateboards at a show outside of a hardcore matinee or wherever or at like, you know, Misfits at Gildersleeves or some any of those shows and like you know, instantly spot each other and talk and talk. And, and at one point he just mentioned to me that he wasn't going to be playing in Murphy's Law much longer and we should do something. And I 
and uh, and it all kind of worked because the guy that was playing uh, bass in the numbskulls, I think, was was going to continue with like university or something, or I forget exactly why he wasn't going to be available much. So it all just kind of made sense, um, and it felt like once Russ was in the in the picture, there was a need for a new name and maybe a new kind of just aesthetic, you know, and, uh, and, and numbskulls always seem like too much of a silly name too too nihilistic or something. And, uh, mm-hmm. so we, we went, uh, I, I think first with, with true blue and that morphed into underdog. And I, and I would say a good amount of songs, whether it was just the music or music and lyrics made it over. Um, I mean, certain songs I, I had written, I had already written, not like you, I know that, um, and there were songs that had different lyrics that that made it over, some of which were never recorded. I don't even know if they were if anyone ever recorded them live. Um, but I don't know. I'm going to say something like half a dozen songs to some degree uh, that War Numbskull songs ended up as as underdog songs. OK. And for True Blue, did you have the song written first? Or did that come after you and Russ talked about starting something? Um, that's a very good question. I, I want to say, you know, it, it's Russ, I, I, pretty much with all the underdog songs, I wrote the music and the lyrics. There were a couple of songs where he came in with music, but those those songs I think don't appear until uh, until we did the album, the full length on Caroline. Um, okay. I, I think that, but the names, both True Blue and Underdog, if memory serves, were suggested by Russ. And and I think with, with True Blue, and by the way, again, showing how ancient we all are, this this shortly predates Madonna's True Blue. Okay. We didn't, we didn't take that song title from her. Um, but but I think the title, once he suggested the name for the band, the, the title really resonated with me. It, it resonated with me as a song title, forgive me. And uh, yeah, and I took that and just ran with it and it became a song. So it was, it was True Blue as a name existed first. Okay. Or it was a song, kind of in the way Neil Simon comes up with a title for a play before the play exists. You know? right, exactly. Although, yeah, he doesn't do much anymore because he's dead. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, and there's a lot of Neil Simon in Underdog. I don't know if you guys noticed that. I picked up on that. Yeah. Um, so talk to me a little bit more about like skate rock and the influence of skateboarding on underdog and, and as, as you, as a young punker, uh, so this is 85. I mean, skateboarding as an industry hadn't really existed that long. Were the thrasher skate, uh, skate rock tapes out by then? Uh, yeah, there were there were a couple of those floating around again, if memory serves. And '85 is when the Underdog Seven Inch finally comes into existence. But the, for me, the whole blending of skateboarding and hardcore really kind of starts when I first get into hardcore. And I first got into hardcore, uh, even though at the time I was playing in a different kind of band. In in '81 is when I started going to shows, and so for me, it, it, there was always something that really you know, kind of fit in an almost no brainer way with, with skateboarding and, and with hardcore with the, you know, the, the kind of frenetic energy and the, the speed and the danger and the, you know, um, the wild kind of like abandon and, you know, and there was just something that 
also for me fit so beautifully just about literally the the sound of of hardcore punk rock and and the imagery of you know of people doing layback frontside grinds on a you know in a pool or something so it just it all kind of fit together um for me you know there was certain stuff that always sounded just sounded like skate core to me even if it wasn't just because it came from the west coast and a lot of that music just had that aesthetic for me and and i remember when i first got into you know just the the sort of skateboarder culture um you know like thrasher was printed on newsprint and it was kind of hard to find and re- in new york there was only really like rat cage records where you kind of you know could go and actually you know, order a pair of custom vans or something or buy a deck or trucks or wheels. It was, it was really undercover and, uh, and underground and to get that stuff, to get to it, whether it was a zine or actual skateboarding equipment, wasn't, wasn't like today. You didn't just, there weren't just these mega corporations like selling all this stuff. And yeah. Yeah. Like now you can get Thrasher at 7-Eleven. Right, Thrasher wasn't wasn't a glossy at that point, and it was super. You know, it it looked it had a super do it yourself kind of vibe. There were a kind a couple of glossies that existed then, sort if you want to call them that. There was like skateboarder magazine stuff that was around since the seventies, but it was it was super underground, and 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 skateboarding felt more underground then. You know, like there were especially in the Northeast, it was was hard to find. There were you know, backyard half pipes were few and far between and you had to like, mm-hmm. you know, drive a long way to go to one, you know, yeah. and, and, and East coast skateboarders idolized, you know, a, a lot of the West coast stuff. You know, I remember back then reading about like Dwayne Peters or, or you know, or, or there'd be like a, a skate park on the East coast would have like Shogo Kubo come and do a demo and you'd, skate barefoot and everyone would watch it and their minds would be blown. It was, it was a very different scene back then. Mm-hmm. And now I, think- I live in the suburbs and I have, there's literally a, you know, I live across from a playground and there's a skate park there. Like, yeah. can you imagine, like, I can't imagine if well, that was around even when I was a kid. Like, yeah, same. No, it wasn't. And, and there were the, the legendary like West coast skate parks exist. And there was like uh on the East coast, we had Cherry Hill, you know, which was uh, not that far from New York. It was mm-hmm. in New Jersey. And, um, but, you know, I kind of, uh, I have an eight year old son and he loves skateboarding. And, and I, and I love the fact that, you know, that I live in Manhattan and, you know, I can, we can go down to the river, walk North for, for a while. And then we come upon a skate park um, and, and he can, you know, just skate uh, to his heart's content on, perfectly smooth concrete structures and it's cool it's not it's not punk and it's not underground or anything but it's you know it's awesome i'm Mm -hmm. glad it exists but how cool is that for you as a parent though to have your kid like and be like you know like i you know imagine you being eight years old and being able to do that like it has to be a kind of surreal yeah it's super cool it's also cool to see him you know i i always try and let my kids just gravitate to stuff on their own you know i don't try and like form them into little uh versions of myself or whatever i have an eight-year-old son and a 12-year-old daughter and it's cool how when they do gravitate toward things that i love it's it's pretty amazing and uh and he seems to have this kind of old soul uh just 
skateboarding aesthetic. Like he, he's really, you know, I've, he, once he got into it, of course I sat with him we watched YouTube videos. We watched all the like current like shredders who were doing things that I couldn't even think were possible back then. Yeah. And then also I'd show him like people that I thought were super rad when I, when, when I was young and when I was a teenager and when I was in my twenties and, and he's, you know, he's decided that Steve Caballero is his favorite skateboarder, which is super rad. It's oh, like nice. he's decided that a guy that's like even a little bit older than I am is his favorite skateboarder and um, just loves his style of skating and everything. So it's stuff like that is super cool, um, you know, uh, and super rewarding. I kind of, you know, you, you always kind of wish people could experience things um, with the, with sort of the same kind of, um, ancillary like cultural vibe that was going on when you were into something you know so I try and explain to to my kids what it was like you know to be into skateboarding back then and how it was this thing that was hard to find or what it was like when you know if you liked a band that wasn't a mainstream band how you had to kind of pound the pavement and find out what they were mm -hmm. leaving and go to different record stores and and uh you know there there are great things and terrible things about the fact that absolutely everything is just at our fingertips now and we can just sit at home be lazy and look at our smartphone and have any of those things delivered to our house and i know i think yeah. about that a lot actually just like how you know and i think but i think that that's also why you know yourself and javier and jason and me i think that might be why we probably digest music differently because we had to work for it and we had to, you know, had to actually buy the record and sit right. with the thing. And now like you can just send somebody a Spotify link, like here's a new album, check it out. Boom. Yeah, and it's cool. Like I love, you know, that stuff I missed out on when I was a kid, I can now hear theoretically for free, but yeah, it, it's cool lost. from, it's cool from the point of view of people having access to things that were once obscure and almost impossible to find. And that all of that's really great. I do think it has negative ramifications with just the sort of actual creation of new things or of, or, or of even the possibility for an actual subculture to really exist. Like mm -hmm. once the world really did become a, this global village that was, you know, it, it kind of killed off cool regional culture, you know, yeah, like, agreed. you know, cities used to have a sound, right? Like Detroit had a sound. It was like the Stooges and then it became something else. And then it, you know, and then it was like by way of Ann Arbor, it was negative approach or whatever. Mm -hmm. New York hardcore didn't sound anything like LA hardcore. And, and I don't know. Um, it, it just feels like now you can't even, you don't have the, kind of isolation that you need for the the whole kind of primordial soup of a new subculture to like bubble and simmer and become something distinct anymore yeah yeah like like i was thinking as you're talking i'm thinking like like you're around you know like you said 81 so whenever the antidote seven inch came out like mm -hmm. think about that like if someone would have told you yo in 30 years or whatever you're going to be able to listen to seven inch anywhere yeah. in your pocket like you can you can pull out your phone go to spotify and pull up the seven inch it used to be this like you know i mean it still is but this holy grail like that you know you had to kind of be in the know to even know that record yeah absolutely and and you know and or or if you if someone had told me even you know back when i used to go to like nine nine records on mcdougall street and and buy misfit seven inches for whatever i don't know two three yeah. dollars 
whatever they cost that one day these are going to be worth this much and and there will be people you know who never even went to any of these shows absolutely obsessed with owning every last one of them and spending you know thousands of dollars to own them all. yeah um but yeah i mean the the only the one thing that did give me the sort of um not foresight but a glimpse into the future that actually panned out to be fairly accurate was the fact that i was into a lot of like cyberpunk uh sci-fi back then so um you know things like the you know books like neuromancer and stuff that kind of predicted everyone carrying you know their entire life around on a phone in their pocket mm. um you know did actually turn out to be true so i got I, at least you know I, I saw hints of that coming but i i still didn't believe it would be yeah reality. i think a lot of people when they didn't have all the information that they wanted at their fingertips, they would look for guidance on what was cool. And one of those things was obviously Thrasher and the skate rock comps. And could you tell us about Underdog being on the Noise Forest compilation and working with Pusshead on that? Um, You know, I wish I could tell you about it in, in, in great detail, other than we were super stoked to be anywhere within light years of, of Pusshead, um, yeah. who was, you know, so revered and so such an integral part of that whole culture. I mean, we, we were beyond stoked. I mean, we were, you know, we were guys who love skateboarding, Russ being the, the best skater amongst us, who is the, like, the truest definition of like a skate punk, a guy who, you know, Russ totally, you know, he, he thought like competition was, you know, you know, like sanctioned skateboarding competition was kind of bullshit. And he was, and he was sponsored and he probably, you know, back then if he had wanted to, he could have pursued being a pro skateboarder. He was absolutely shredded. Um, so we love skateboarding to the, to, to the point where yes, being uh, part of that, compilation just had us through the roof like over the moon super stoked and uh and like beyond honored and also thought it was cool because we were a very different thing to a lot of uh the other bands who were kind of filed under the skate rock category and actually as as like kind of a sub-genre under hardcore skate rock was pretty diverse musically if you think about it like it was pretty wide-ranging you know, if you think about like what the nardcore kind of band sounded like and what sort of more like bands like East Coast bands like McRad or Underdog yeah. sounded like or or JFA from Arizona and stuff. That, um, it, it's pretty cool that within this tiny little niche subgenre, there's such a diverse range of, of sounds. It's pretty it's pretty awesome. And that was also probably it's one of my favorite Pusshead pieces. Yeah. The tree with the chainsaw guitar. It's but incredible. was that the first time anyone heard those? Are these the same sessions that, as the underdog demos? Uh, yeah, yeah, if, if they they are, and and I think it would probably be the first, the first time that they were heard by anyone. Yeah, outside. Of okay, it. and I heard that Puss had picked the bands himself that he wanted on that comp. That's that's super rad. I don't know. That's cool. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so I'm even more honored if that if that's the case. But yeah, um, yeah, that's what I heard for it. Yeah, that 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 particular piece of artwork is 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 amazing. I, I, for me, yeah, it's like top five puss head pieces. Yeah, um, I'm looking up it up now, and the comp has like uniform choice. Uh, yeah, 
SNFU Brotherhood instead. Like this is. Yeah. A- I heard this when I was in high school and it kind of blew my mind and the artwork was a big, you know, reason why I love that so much and like the band so much on that comp. But um, what were there any companies and pros that underdog really gelled with and hung out with and. Um, well, we did, we did hang out with some, and that, that was through Russ's connections. When we were touring, I remember in Venice beach, um, we, we hung out with Jeff Hartzell and Chris Cook who, uh, were, were living there, who were skaters and down with the whole kind of Dogtown scene and everything. And, okay. uh, and, and we, you know, just, just aesthetically, you know, underdog was much more of an indie trucks and then tracker trucks kind of a van, you know, we, yeah. we, always, we always identify, you know, that, that was always a, a, a more aesthetically and in every other way, like indie trucks spoke to us more than, uh, than tracker. I would say if I could speak for the whole band, although I think later on when Chuck was in the band, I, he, he may have skated tracker trucks. Maybe he still does and nothing against tracker. <laughs> yeah. Tracker was flimsy. So I'm Yo, just Mike Judge. It. Mike Judge was Team Tracker. I'm He's wearing a Tracker shirt. Hey, on the, the, uh... the Tracker graphics were cool, but Traffer, Tracker trucks were flimsy. Independent were a lot stronger. Yeah, independent were a lot more. Them, and for me, it was probably because I could go to Rack Cage and buy indie trucks, and I couldn't buy I, buy Tracker. So maybe that's why you know sure. they, my loyalty. But you know, um, uh, Russ skated for a company called Walker. Okay. Uh, for a while, who? Um, yeah, so it was, it was more, it was none of the big giant global, um, you know, bands. There were certain skaters too that, you know, even, you know, Russ, Russ actually ended up skating a couple of sessions with Jay Adams. And, and a lot oh, of the, a lot of those nice. skaters who were super irreverent and super punk kind of resonated with us. Um, I was a big fan of really just kind of quirky, kind of neurotic skaters. I love Neil Blender, who skated for GNS. Oh my God, like, yes. I really identified with his whole vibe and and just his whole aesthetic. Uh, I think he and and Mark Gonzalez were probably my two favorite skaters, not just as not just the way they skated, mm-hmm. which I love, but just their vibe. They're kind of like art and poetry vibe, and they're yeah, both, the artsiness, both great artists, yeah, yeah, and and, the, and they both seem kind of like misfits and people yeah. who are on the fringes. So I I just felt a lot of like. Uh, I identified with those guys a lot, um, just just as far as a vibe and where they kind of existed in the in the world. So for me, it was those guys. Um, I know Russ loved Jay Adams, Dwayne Peters, um, and those guys, and I thought they were amazing. Um, yeah, and uh, but but the only time the only skaters we really um, spent time with that were outside of like music uh were those guys in venice jeff hartzell and and chris cook okay and then for the so i wanted to ask about since we're talking artwork the the demos lp that came out in europe before this one has the pool skater that's really kind of iconic for underdog and who drew that imagery you know the funny thing is russ that was not like commissioned for or meant for underdog Mm. russ somehow came across that that artwork um and was like that just has to be you know it just you know we have to have that so we we either legitimately or illegitimately appropriated that and and we either licensed it or we didn't um but you know squatters rights it became underdogs so i would you know so i don't 
neither, neither Russ nor I know the genesis of that artwork. Um, but yeah, we just kind of saw it out there and, and it just, it just fit. We just grabbed it. Um, whereas like other art, like the cover of the vanishing point was something that I literally dictated to a guy uh, who just a friend of mine who worked at the pyramid club, who was happened to be a great painter and, mm -hmm. and, and he executed it. So that was commissioned specifically for that release. And it was a, you know, an artist that I knew. And, uh, uh, but yeah, the, the skater pulling the plug out of the bottom of the pool was, you know, so iconic. It's still it's like, sick, even 2021. And I want to, yeah, you know, I have a is, shirt of that and I want another shirt of that. It, it is sick. I'll, I'll, I'll you want a shirt, Jason? Yes, of that for a sure. A t-shirt? <laughs> I, I didn't know you were a fan. Listen, you yeah. know, I'm going to send you a code for a 5% discount. Yes. <laughs> and free shipping if you spend $199. There we go. So... Can we go back and can you tell us about recording the True Blue demo in 85? But before you go, before you tell us about that, was it intended to be a demo that you shopped around to labels or was it just kind of a let's get together and record? No, it was kind of like, you know, want to get these songs that I'm writing down, you know, on something. And uh, we we were actually, we didn't shop around. We, we, were, we were approached by Billy Rubin from, from New Beginning to, uh, to see if we wanted, you know, he's saying he was going to start a label. Do you guys want to be in it? And we, you know, probably ultimately to our own detriment because we, we could have, I, I, you know, Underdog could have just ended up being from the get-go a rev band. Yeah. You know, probably because uh, Jordan and Ray were dear, dear friends and, and, but, but I think we, we always placed ourselves on the fringes, you know, and we always, you know, very, you know, even though we were part of a, of a scene and part of a genre, we always kind of like seemed to resist that. I always had this knee jerk thing to always resist, like being filed under anything specific. And, and, uh, and so we, we thought, wow, a label that doesn't exist yet and our, first release doesn't exist yet this is perfect so let's just let's just do it like not mm -hmm. even um and billy rubin was awesome awesome guy and and um you know so it was literally just one conversation you know do you guys want to put out an ep on my new label new beginning and, and i i think i just immediately was like yeah for sure definitely that that completely fits with everything we want to do and we want to be um so yeah, that was there was no like shopping around process or anything. Yeah, um, and the songs it was just like uh, you know wanting to get those those songs down on something other than just like a cassette deck, you know, and just record them as properly as they could be recorded with really no no budget and no and no you know no elaborate recording studio. Um, you know, we went to that place, Electric Reels, outside of the city, and. Uh, which was a, you know, it was a very modest setup and that they had never done a hardcore record and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't Don Fury or anything where they had, had any kind of a, a punk, punk provenance or, or, you know, clientele or anything. But um, yeah, it was just, just wanting to, for whatever reason, to document those songs. Okay. In the liner notes, didn't it say that it was recorded at somebody's house? The true blue stuff? 
Well, no, it just says that Electric Reels was then only a guy's living room bathroom. It was, yeah, it was okay, a guy named okay. Dan Nicholas. So Electric Reels had a name, and it sounded like you know property. It was a guy's house, part of which had been kind of fitted to become a studio. So okay, which, I understand. It's not unusual at all, right? But it wasn't like you know when it wasn't like a a place even like Chung King where you go and it's just a recording studio. It's a business that was established to just be a recording studio. It was, right. it was a guy's house where we put in a, a desk and some mics and, and uh, you know, had a room with, with a couple of, you know, partitions you could move around for isolation and stuff. Okay. It was like was it was it, bare bones. It was pretty bare bones. Was that your first time recording something? No, no, no. My first time recording something was, um, Long before puberty, I was, when I was a little kid, um, I sang on a children's television show called The Captain Kangaroo Show. So nice. I, was, I was going into recording studios a lot as, as like a, you know, six, seven, eight-year-old kid, um, mostly in, in New York studios down in, in Soho and Manhattan that were proper like pro studios. And, and my mom is a composer, lyricist. She wrote songs for children's television, which is why, you know, that was totally nepotism. <laughs> so mm -hmm. like the five bucks I made in that career was pure nepotism. And, um, and, <laughs> and she ended up as just like primarily a lyricist for, for but, um, but so she, but because of her and, and her whole music scene, I was in recording studios a lot from a very early age. That had to be so neat just to grow up with having a mom, like that artistic and musical because like I don't know about like my mom was actually artistic with painting and drawing um but like my parents weren't musical like some people you hear like oh I came from a musical family and it was just you know it, so right. that had to be really awesome like growing up like that if you were into music and to know that like yeah. mom writes lyrics and your mom composed songs and knew about recording studios like yeah, no, it was, it was amazing and something, you know, that's not lost on me and something I never took for granted. The, the fact that, you know, I could just like sit under my mom's piano when I was a toddler and soak in all this music she was playing at her piano or learn about. She, she's also kind of a musicologist and very knowledgeable about every era of music. And and so, you know, for me, even you know, I could always clearly draw a line from, you know, pick any genre that preceded, you know, the jazz of the 1920s, which became sort of rhythm and blues, which became rock and roll, which became all of these, you know, subgenres of rock and roll, including punk. So for me, I was always able to to see that line over time and in different regions of the world and 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 kind of get it and kind of understand it and see how each genre informed another and each kind of movement informed another or like how geopolitical you know stuff informed uh kind of more subversive underground scenes and, and music and stuff and dare i say that i think that's probably one of the things one of the reasons that underdog sound different than maybe the stuff of that era or because you were bringing in that knowledge and you know the the different style than just like somebody who like like me i didn't grow up listening to like like i you know my my music basically almost started at college rock or punk like i didn't have that whole like i wasn't able to see that line you talked about until i was much older yeah if it did i mean if if that is a reason why underdog sounds different 
that's awesome. It, that wasn't a conscious thing, you know, where I was like, you know, it was, you know, I basically, if, if I was writing a song, I was like, you know, I hope this is as rad as that, like JFA riff that I love or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, it wasn't, it was a lot less, it, it wasn't deliberate. I think obviously anytime anyone creates something, there are so many dynamics that go into what it ultimately ends up sounding like. And certainly with, with anything that's kind of, punk or do it yourself a lot of what affects the way something sounds are all the imperfections right and all the limitations of the various band members like ability to play their instrument or whatever you know and sometimes those things are in a really great way affect the sound you know like for me like you know early agnostic front wouldn't be nearly as rad with like perfectly tuned guitars and no. like, like, like glossy production right they would right. ruined everything and like the reason why it's so menacing and so amazing and so like is because of the imperfections and, and I, I think it's the same thing with with underdog or with, or with or with anything that's kind of kind of underground and not you know not recorded with like steely dan level production <laughs> so, so did did you play shows where you played guitar and sang, did I? I feel like I read that. Yeah, that, that that was at the kind of tail end of Underdog. We were we were the proverbial power trio. Like was that okay. after, so after Chuck? So was gone right. We would basically work our way through the whole Rush discography. You know, so <laughs> chronologically, we we did like these uh, residencies, these Rush residencies, that we called them. Yeah, have you guys not heard about those? They're kind of cool. No, I heard, I, I heard uh, but I'm assuming Rev would put that out as like a yeah. retrospective box set for record store. Yeah, I, I want to I plug it now. The Rush Residencies uh, premiering on Netflix. And, there we go. Um, yeah, so we did we did play a handful of shows where I played guitar and sang. What was that like going from, you know, just being a it, singer to singing guitar? It was different. As I remember, those those shows were surprisingly high energy and good. And I still got like kicked in the face and stuff. So people still went nuts and everything. But it was super different. Yeah. I mean, it was like the, you know, as you can imagine, just the whole experience up there when you have a guitar in your hands is very different from when you only have yeah. a guitar. So, um, but yeah, those shows did happen in the the last year we were together, which was '89. So I don't I don't know that any of those shows happened in '88. It's possible, but I think they all happened kind of '89 ish. Okay. So '85 demo uh, is recorded at Electric Reels. Eventually, a few other bands would record there. Right, uh, Break Down the Walls was recorded at Electric Reels. Speak Out was recorded there. I guess my question is, does the underdog demo predate any sort of youth of today recording? Because that's like 86, right? 86 uh, was the Don Fury demo. I don't know. I don't know if it predates Can't Close My Eyes. I think oh I think I think it, it must, right? Because that yeah, I but I don't know. I don't know that it predates Can't Close My Eyes. Youth of Today Breakdown the Walls recorded there. I yeah. uh I discovered Electric Reels, I think, through the guys, and and this is the reason why they subsequently did other hardcore stuff. Um, through the original uh, bass player for um, when I first met them, because the, the Numbs, I think the Numbskulls had actually gone up there and and maybe done some stuff. But I, I know the person who led us 
who led me to electric reels originally um, were the bass player and guitar player. Uh, well, the bass player for, sorry, the bass player for the numbskulls, George Shapiro, and the guitar player for underdog, Dan Dorella. Okay. Um, knew Dan Nicholas, who was the owner of Electric Reels. And uh, and I, you know, Break Down the Walls, I played on that. So how we ultimately ended up at Dan's studio, I don't remember exactly, but the, the original, you know, uh, sourcing of that studio happened through members of Numbskulls slash True Blue. So, uh, okay. yeah, but I, I don't, I'd, I'd have to... My guess would be that maybe Ray and, and Purcell and Passion, those I think they recorded uh, Can't Close My Eyes maybe before the Underdog Demos was recorded, but I can't be certain. Yeah, that, kinda, that was not at Electric Grill. Yeah, it kind of seems like everything kind of happened around the same time, uh, 85, 86. Like, I'm sure. And, and the, anybody remembers any of that stuff in 2021, Blows my mind. <laughs> Blows my mind. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it does seem you know in ways it seems like centuries ago, and in yeah. other ways it feels you know like yesterday. But the so yeah. Oh, sorry. I, I before we move to the second demo was was the True Blue demo recorded where you, when you went into the studio to do that were you still called True Blue, and then it changed later, or is it called the True Blue demo just because? That's the name of the like. You change the name to Underdog, but you decide to keep the name for the release. Yeah, well, I think well, and the even the release isn't really called True Blue. It's just you know, um, it, I think it, by the time we actually went and recorded it, we had probably changed the name to Underdog. True Blue existed okay. for a very very brief period. Okay. Very brief. Okay. So. Can you talk to us about the 88 demos? Sure. And uh, so those, those demos, I actually ended up playing guitar on those, um, even though, you know, then Chuck subsequently joins and, and he plays on the, on the album, on the Vanishing Point album. Um, and w with those, they're, you know, if, if, it was again just the the you know wanting to just document these songs before too much time went on and like um so there was just wanting to get them down um but there was also um you know they were kind of sketches for an album we knew we wanted to do mm -hmm. an album we didn't know on which label it would be um and and the caroline came about um because I met uh, a woman named Janet Billig who went on to, she, she was there and then she went on to like, I think manage Nirvana at some point later on. Yeah. She, okay. she's uh was she, I read about her a lot in like with replacements and Husker do like she was yeah. around that whole like sire yeah. and Warner brothers and stuff. Yeah. yeah. She, and she was just super rad and just, just, just like an awesome person. One of the nicest people I've, I've met a lot of just absolutely awful people in the record industry. Like, <laughs> And she is, it was in everywhere the polar opposite of all of them. She was just, you know, she wasn't self-important or pretentious or an asshole or anything. She just loved music. And, uh, and she was like kind of nerdy and just, and smart. And she was, she was, she was rad. And she, so she was just like, 
hey, I you know, I work for this label and we're we're not that big and we're not that small and and uh, could, could you just come in and, and talk to them and meet, and meet the guy running it and whatever and so you know and we were we ended up recording the album on like a shoestring because I didn't even know because I I was getting such an awesome rate like next to nothing recording rate at electric reels i thought you don't need a lot of money to to make an album so i remember when i went in and then this like the head of caroline who you know was had our demo there and he's like you know how much money do you think you you know how much do you reckon you need to make an album i was like i don't know um i don't know like is it would like 7500 bucks be too much or so i forget it was some it was some like insanely stupid nominal some that I yeah. thought, you know, was like, you know, we could, we could make like dark side of the moon and we <laughs> if we had that. And we'll um, have money left over. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, what color family do you want? So, <laughs> so yeah, so it was still made on a shoestring, even though we were on a label that actually like distributed their stuff and well and everything. Um, but of course, you know, th there were lots of, other things we we could have done a lot better with uh with that album the you know the demos becoming the album um you know we probably at some point should have thought about like production and mastering and just having this thing sound as good as it could possibly sound which you know in hindsight i think it all could have sounded a lot better but i but i do love the vibe of the of those demos um because they really, they really are, they sound to me like what they were, which was these kind of like sketches for something to come, which wasn't, which consciously when we were recording those, we know they weren't meant for release. So when they were ultimately released as demos, for me, it's kind of like a, a cool glimpse into the process because you're listening to something that was like an internal working document, you know, like, mm -hmm. so it's, it's kind of, cool in that regard for me and people swear by these i mean i do too swear by these demos like i was thinking like i can't really think of any other genre of music where we like obsess over demos like nobody's like oh man yeah. did you hear the uh taylor swift's demos yeah it's like, true. you know what i mean yeah. like because but meanwhile like in some cases people will swear you know there's that in joke with hardcore the demo was better you know and, and well, with hardcore with anything that's earlier or precedes something else is always better which i was kind of laughed at but i also felt that way as a fan of hardcore music too i was one of the older thing and the thing that was more raw and more of a demo it's true it's the only genre even though demos get released on like deluxe versions of other people's you know discographies i'm sure yeah. you you could probably even hear like Frankie goes to Hollywood demos if you want on some like, you know, yeah. <laughs> three CD deluxe version of, you know, uh, whatever that was called, Thunderdome or Terradome. Anyway, <laughs> but, uh, but, but yes, it's true. Only in hardcore do we like swear by demos and, and are they, you know, the, the, the gold, you know, like, that, yeah. I think it's, so, a yeah. I think it's pleasure dome by the way. Pleasure down. Yeah, I, I, I knew that. I was, uh, <laughs> hey, so was the vanishing point? Welcome to the pleasure dome. The, if I, the, <laughs> public enemy, welcome I to the pleasure that. dome. Was the vanishing point the first physical release, or did these demos have actual tapes? Well, besides the seven inch, you mean, right? Right. Yeah, besides the seven inch. Um, 
Yeah, it was, it was the first kind of like sanctioned release. I, of course, you know, as is always the case when you've like recorded some demos. And by the way, demos never have final mixes, right? You just go and you get a serviceable mix and you get Good it, point. You leave the studio with a cassette. And then invariably some like close friend is like, hey, can you dub that cassette for me? So mm -hmm. there were, the demos made their way around, not, not among a great many people or anything, but as cassettes, the, the, those, and they weren't called like, you know, I mean, they probably were called like, you know, whatever, 88 demo or something. Um, but so they weren't released properly. Uh, the, and those songs were re-recorded for the Caroline release. But so, yeah. so most people's like intake of those true underdog demo recordings didn't happen until 1993 when Revelation put yeah. out the yeah. So so like thing. so for the earlier ones, the the ones that ended up on the 80, 1985 EP, there, there were songs that weren't on there that people heard, you know, like and then or versions of, uh, and then for the demos that would become the vanishing point. Yes. That's the first time they were ever released was later on in 93. Okay. And was that weird? Like to be approached at some points, I don't know if we're skipping ahead here in the timeline, if you guys have anything else, but if at some point in the, you know, cause this, that then predates, um, does that predate creepy EP? I mean, it's chronologically uh, later. That was like, yeah, this is ninety three. Oh, okay, so this is yeah. pre. This is pre ignore us. Pre -ignore but it, us. Yeah. but at some point they're like, hey, we want to do a, a a CD, a cardboard slipcase CD, and a twelve inch and a tape of the underdog demos. I know yeah. that it's like eight years later, but like, what do you think? Let's do this. It, yeah, it was just born of like conversations with Jordan between me and Jordan, you know, phone calls and visiting him and stuff, and. Uh, yeah, so it just see it just seemed like a neat idea because, you know, I think the way it started was, you know, that he he always liked the way those demos sounded or something, and mm -hmm. then, um, it just made sense to put them on a release. So I thought cool, and just thought it'll just become this esoteric, weird little novel thing. Um, yeah, not that it's any much more than that in, in like stature of recordings, but. Um, yeah, it was just it just uh, was just this organically developing thing as the result of conversations and phone calls with a friend over the years. So, because then it comes out again, seventeen years later, on yeah. this, but not on Rev. It's this is them holding up the ma uh, underdog yeah. Matchless. It's the I guess you yeah. call it the discography, right? It's everything. Um, the omnibus, if you will. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. It's it's our oeuvre. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that that came about with uh, I guess Russ and and the, the guy who put that out or the label who put that out. Just yeah, I don't. Yeah, I was. It felt weird not having it on Rev to me. If I if I have to say, I was like, oh, like me too, me too. Um, and I'll leave it at that. We're and I'll leave. I, yes, and I will leave my respectfully. But um, there, what's yeah. funny is like my intro to Underdog was. There was the song on the In Flight program CD. Uh, yeah. I think it was Say It To My Face. And I thought that was cool. But then the one that really sucked me in was the, I guess, the go-kart version of, of this one, yeah. uh, of The Vanishing Point. Do you have – I know you mentioned the LP. Like, out of all this, do you have a preference over, like, what – like, do you find 
that you like the LP more? Do you find that you like the first demo, the second demo? Like, I'm always curious. So just sort of sonically, um, I like the rawness of the 85 stuff and just how, how like kind of janky and, and raw it sounds. I mean, it is devoid of any polish whatsoever. Um, so just, just, just from a, just aesthetically as a sound and a vibe, I think I prefer that there, there, there are songs, uh, you know, on that later stuff, um, you know, that I really love a lot. I, it's, it's hard because there, you know, I'd have to pick different aspects. I think all in all, maybe it's a wash and I, and I, and I dig them both to a similar degree, but just from a straight up, um, you know, overall vibe and sound, mm-hmm. maybe I'd, I'd pick the earlier stuff. Okay. Cause I know, and I know we're jumping around a bit, um, but how did I, you know, how did the reunion in 98 when was that just how did that come about because that was actually my first time seeing underdog oh, wow. uh you guys played at the trocadero in philly um yeah. with like floor punch and maybe ensign and it was it was a school night for me i was i'm dating myself here i was a senior it was like the beginning of my senior year and i was like oh i'm gonna get to see underdog and this was i try to tell people too this was before the age when like every band got back together. Yeah, but, it was. So it was like a really big deal. Cause it was like, wow, like this band existed. And even though now I'm like, Oh, it was only nine years. They broke up, but know, to me, it seemed like a hundred years. Yeah. And it felt that way when we, when we did those, those shows in 98, it felt like a hundred years had passed and it's true, but the, our sense of time, you know, I remember back then, just this is a non sequitur. I'll get back to the 98 thing, but I remember like, when Youth of Today came around, really only two years after the bands that really influenced them were playing, but when, when SSD and DYS and, and all that was happening in 82 and 83, like really happening full force, you know, then like two years goes by and there's this sort of revivalist movement of like, you know, of that kind of hardcore. And, right. and, and, and hardcore in general was, was going more kind of metal, but along comes like, I remember feeling like, yes, we're returning to the old days of like, yeah, I remember going to the first Youth of Today show before I was in the band and just being so psyched that there were, you know, there was, a, here was this band carrying the flag and bringing back this, this movement I remember from two years ago, you know, like, <laughs> like anyway. Um, so yeah, 98, um, I think the first thing, uh, that started that ball rolling was was Russ calling me and and talking about the these shows were planned and the one he was talking about was an Asbury Park show I think was the, the first thing he was talking about mm-hmm. and and even though I always had this like this thing about never wanting to do reunions and be that band that was going to be the the do the reunion shows it all just felt right and like the the bills, the, the other bands are going to be on and the kind of, um, it just, it all felt like a good, just a, a good vibe. And it was really fun. Like, yeah. cause I'm glad, I'm glad yeah. you did it. Cause it was, it was super fun for, especially like me at that point being fairly new, you know, four years, five years into hardcore. Right. And then, you know, getting to see this band that 
I never thought I would see. Like I've said on here before, like when I was a junior and senior in high school, if someone would have been like, yo, like you're going to get to see judge and bold and youth of today and gorilla biscuits. And there's going to be times where they come around so often that you might be like, ah, oh, I'm going to pass this time. I'm too busy. I'd have been like, no way. Yeah. So, but this was, yeah. it was kind of like a, just a neat time. Cause I think you guys and burn were like the only ones that were playing really around that time. Yeah. And if, you know, another thing for me personally, that was cool about those shows is for me, I had gotten enough distance from where, you know, into another was born from just sort of like Drew and I feeling the need to like, kind of just do something new and something different where we weren't, you know, that, that was not, constrained by anything like genre or anything else and then I had gone on this journey and done this other band and then that and that band ended up breaking up and I was kind of like languishing because I had all these like weird contractual stuff and everything with with the way into another kind of fell apart and and so I, I was you know I had gone through this like period of not playing shows and really wanting to and and uh and then, and I had all this stuff swirling around in me emotionally. So along comes this chance to have this like cathartic, like experience go and scream my head off again and like play some hardcore shows and, and just get out all this like pent up rage and frustration that I had at that time, which I did in 98 for sure. And uh, so it was kind of like in this opportune moment to just go play some, some hardcore shows and just like exercise some demons and have some catharsis. Did you get pressured to play in 93 when this came out by Rev or was there any trying to, I don't know if pressured is the right word, but did, were they trying to get you guys to reunite then? These like burly guys showed up at my house. <laughs> <laughs> the hardcore it, was, it was pretty scary. They like show me photographs of my mom. <laughs> like, we know where your mother lives. And so, but still, you know, I, I was pretty good at, uh, at martial arts in those days. So I, just dispatch those guys. <laughs> and then you got to <laughs> wait five years before. Uh... Um, yeah. So um, yeah, if I didn't, if I wasn't good at Krav Maga, it probably would have turned out very differently. We would have played. <laughs> no, there was, I mean, there wasn't pressure there. Uh, I think that we were asked, you know, or, or like, I don't know, a few promoters, like the, the, certainly the subject was broached several times over the years. And I think maybe the first time it just felt, right was probably 98 and also at, at that time you know in 93 i was like you know whole hog full bore uh you know into another it was like mm -hmm. was you know that was my thing yeah yeah like it wouldn't it wouldn't have been the uh it would probably wouldn't have been the right time like you said and um it's funny i was thinking about where this demos lp falls in the rev catalog like our last episode was iceburn hephaestus so you got like iceburn and and then actually before that might have been into another i think it was creepy yeah yeah, yeah creepy EP, hephaestus then underdog demos and then we, statue and then mike judge and old smoke so that's yeah. like where where rev was at this time too like 93 dare i say it might have almost been too early for like on like I think more people were psyched in '98 because there like you said there was enough distance in their rear yeah. view. Yes, uh, exactly. To, to, to go back when you name all those 
rev releases around that time again look, look at what a diverse label you know sonically uh yeah. rev was that people just think of rev as this like straight edge hardcore label you know or something yeah. you just look look at the you know how broad that spectrum is just between like mike judge and old smoke and iceburn and underdog demos and into another and um pretty cool so hats off to jordan for I, I agree that's that's why we like doing the podcast because we get to i mean ice the ice burn to bold is night and day you know yeah. so it's not all stuck on the same thing so i know hob you had a question right i have it. a burning question about the reggae influence on underdog and where that came from and how and why you guys decided to put reggae tracks onto those two demos or at least on the 88 demo yeah well yeah and even proceed so for me just because uh, you know i was you know you go through life and you periodically at least for me i i would like plunge into a, a genre of music and just obsess over it you know in the way that like when when i was 15 and playing my first shows out in like a rockabilly band i would like obsess over every single kind of like roots rockabilly release there ever was and every you know including the big stuff like eddie cochran and gene vincent but then like the really obscure you know uh seven inches of the ear and everything so i also always had a great love of everything that was ever released on like studio one and Trojan and on all of that dance hall stuff and all that, that, you know, all that toasting stuff and, and, and jump up kind of reggae. And, and even before that, like real old ska, like, before sure, like the first, middle, first like wave ska. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even, and, you know, I think that that first develops because when I'm a little kid, my mom introduces me to the kind of like, sanitized version of calypso by way of harry belafonte records that had oh, been yeah. in the 50s you know so and i always had this real affinity for that sound that kind of calypso sound that island sound and then later on of course like everyone else i you know i was blown away by by the whalers and then wanted to you know in, in like the late 70s and stuff and i wanted to get more like the the, the roots of stuff so delved into the whole the whole trojan and studio one world so I just loved a lot of that stuff. You know, I loved a lot of like, you know, Big Youth and Uroy and all and all that kind of sound. And I was always tinkering with it on the guitar and kind of vocally and kind of little vocal refrains that kind of had that sound and that kind of like upstroke guitar stuff. And and just inevitably, because it was always in my psyche and 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 also the other guys in Underdog loved that music and, you know, you know, so often we'd go on on long drives and we'd be, you know, listening to all that old Studio One stuff, you know, green sleeves and, and all that. And uh, it just, I think it was, it was inevitable because I think so often when we were just in a room together, even just like talking and just like fucking around and jamming, we would end up playing these like dub jams that would just like kind of happen. Um, and so I, I think it it just couldn't help but you know, make its way onto a release or two. I didn't hear any uh, bad brains talk in there. Was that, were they? Um, uh, well, yeah, know. I'm sure, I'm sure that, that, you know, they definitely let, let it be known. They, they, yeah. I mean, I certainly should have, 
I I would be remiss not to mention the bad brains. They they are the the blueprint for the fact that you could have that those genres could exist together. They sure they helped invent one of those genres, and they much better than Underdog ever did played the other one of those genres that already existed. So yes, we were huge bad brains fans, but strangely, it wasn't like and and we even like live we actually a couple of times we covered like right brigade and stuff, but we didn't cover like reggae bad brains. We, mm-hmm. And we, um, even though we loved that stuff too, I think that the reggae that influenced us and made its way into a couple of songs, at least for me writing those songs was that like kind of roots reggae kind of dance hall stuff. I was actually going to say that the, the bad brains I hear is more on the, the punk sounding stuff, yeah. not the dub. Like the dub to me sounds different than, than especially. Yeah, I stuff. think the bass playing a lot because the bass in Underdog is so strong, and the bass in Bad Brains is so strong. And um, I, I hear some of those not comparisons, but like threads yeah. in there. Yeah. Same with you know uh, we talked about earlier, and I'm, I mentioned Scream. Same yeah. deal, you know, really great bass playing. Mm-hmm. the punk stuff and the dub like i know the scream was really into the clash and yeah. uh you know all that stuff as well probably the, you know same stuff you guys were into yeah and listen the 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 whole melding of punk and reggae goes back to the clash really and and that makes sense because the clash were a they were very political band and they were very you know they were anti-establishment and and a lot of a lot of reggae was too. A lot of reggae was was very politically charged, and and there are a lot of similarities between punk and certainly like dancehall reggae, where there was a lot of do-it-yourself stuff going on in you know in Kingston, Jamaica, and, and elsewhere, where people and and even in 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 the UK and places like Brixton, where it was this underground scene, and people would just like you know bosh together a sound system and and put out you know, releases with photocopied covers and, uh, you know, on a shoestring budget. So it kind of made sense, even though the musics are so, the, the musical styles are really disparate. Um, they blend together beautifully in the, and, 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 you know, and the clash, I like, it was kind of a no brainer that they incorporated reggae into their whole thing. And, and, but, but for us and not to put us anywhere within light years of that level, um, it really was uh, just writing those songs. It was just because I deeply loved that stuff and was a fan of, of that of that kind of reggae. And uh, and you know, and I always had a guitar in my hand. Was always kind of just like writing riffs and writing songs. It was just just happened. Jason and I really want to know if that was a Bob Marley shirt on the cover of the uh, Rev record. So, yeah, so I, I've taken a lot of, justifiably so, a lot, of ribbing, <laughs> a lot of ribbing over the years. First of all, I know that the the reason like Rev chose that photo is sort of the same reason that, that like, um, you know, I, I think a lot of, of photos are chosen. I think there's this like... Uh, and this is not paranoia. I, I totally appreciate this. There's this kind of like, oh, you know, let's embarrass Richie kind of factor. Let's let's face it. That there it is. That you know. So that shirt was not a shirt I owned. That shirt, moments before we played, was given to me by a kid at the show who was like super stoked to see us. And he's like, 
Richie, I brought you a present and he gave me this shirt. And, you know, I wasn't a tie dye guy. I think, you know, <laughs> check, check the record. Like look at, <laughs> look, at, look at contemporaneous photography. Um, uh, but yeah, so, you know, I, I had to wear it. this kid. Like I would wear that shirt. Today. I would wear it. I think yeah, we should wear awesome. that shirt today. Oh, today yeah. I'd be like, yeah, but, but, but then, you know, I, I, I think I, I probably like took off an Alva shirt or an independent shirt yeah. and put that one on. And, and plus it was like, it had never been washed. So it was like starchy. It was starchy and it was loud. It, yeah. was, <laughs> it was like but different it of day glow. It fits and the cover. It fits everything. It fits the band kind of, it fits. No, the, no, I, I know. Yeah. In, in hindsight, it all kind of, it, 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 it aged well. Like, yeah. The other interesting thing about that cover is that you have some uh, local musicians on there that would also be on other Revelation records. Uh, Dan O'Mahony is on that cover. And then this guy in the corner here yelling at you, his name is Zach De La Rocha. Yeah, he he, he did, yeah, he did some obscure stuff with it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, w- I mean, we've tried to get him. We've, yeah, we've heard him. We've tried to get him on the show through various uh, means. Yeah, no, that that's awesome. We figured he could probably use a platform. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, we figured yeah. he could use a platform. He he doesn't yeah. get to you know uh, he, nobody really knows who he is. So we figured why not give him a uh, chance but, to talk? But yeah, um, that, that is pretty cool that he's on that that yeah and that Dano and Zach um, and and various other sort of local legends. Where was that photo taken? That's a very good question. I remember Somewhere in California. That's all. I, I think I know California. the answer to this. Spankies, maybe? Uh, not, not. What was that? Spankies? No, I think we did play Spankies, but I don't know if it was. Um, Jason, you know? I remember that? Like, I, I do remember, actually I remember know. Where, like the YOT breakdown the walls photos were taken in Riverside, at least the one of me, but like, I, I'm trying to remember. Jason, what, what do you got? I think it's called Yesteryears. Wow. In, in uh, Pomona? Yeah, and I think this was, um, this is what Chris Bratton called the beginning of Inside Out was this moment because I was gonna, Zach was, I was such a fan of Richie's style and swagger Whoa. and just your whole vibe and presence. I think I he did. looked up to and wanted to emulate. And he so, said that this was the birth because he said, here's he said, Richie coming out. He's, he says he's got the tie-dyed shirt, which now we're like, holy crap, like you might not have had a tie, but he's got the tie-dyed shirt, you know, underdog still, like Jason said, even at points had that hip hop feel, but still mm-hmm. punk and still like it, had the DC influence. Like, and honestly, all jokes aside, that is so humbling to hear that. Like I, I have like chills because dude, I'm the biggest inside out fan and like, you know, their, their whole vibe is just, you know, that's super incredibly humbling and amazing to to hear that but that's uh, yeah he definitely said he was like this this changed zach he said this and seeing soul side changed zach like this was where he you know basically was like i'm not just going to be a guitar player and hard yeah. stance yeah i need to do I take the next step wow, wow. that's that's yeah. super rad but what i want to know is who ended up with the shirt Oh God, I don't know. I you know I I wish I wish I were a hoarder because 
everything I ever had from the past is gone. And I don't know why. <laughs> I know why some things are gone because like at one point I had a bunch of stuff in, in a car that got like, you know, broken into and things were stolen. Um, but God, I don't know where any, I, I, I look at, and there are certain things I can remember where they went. Like there was, I remember where like a blast shirt I had on that I, I only remember it existed because I, it ended up in like some footage of the Chromags. I was like wearing it that I wasn't wearing it. And I actually remember being at like that show and taking off my blast shirt and like tucking it into my like army pants or something. And mm -hmm. then it's like disappeared. So like, I remember the day that that's, that's one belonging. I remember disappearing, but yeah, I, Fuck if I know where that shirt. <laughs> Someone needs to ever. remake this, Hoff. Uh, yeah, I wore that shirt. One, I do know I wore the shirt once, and and it was that for that shirt. I wore. It How once. psyched is that kid though? The demos comes out, the rev demos drops, and he sees that. I would yeah, be. I think that's yeah. so cool. And and where is that kid? To, he could maybe he's the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Yeah, there you go. Maybe he lives or, in Jamaica, or or maybe he's he's sitting on death row and and you know he he's left a wake of like fifty seven. Yeah, you never know. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. The ripple effect. Petons or something. Yeah. So so on the when I I have the CD that came out later, not the it's not the cardboard case, but when you lift up the CD, it's got this underdog dog with google eyes do you know I, whose dog that is no i i, I have i don't know Wait, what <laughs> it's like underneath the cd tray like a yes like a, it's underneath the cd <laughs> tray See, i i used to have the cd but i don't remember it having a i've never case. seen that i've actually yeah. seen that that's 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 wow at this it's a first time for, uh, we got to post that on the instagram Jay. yeah 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 it's i saw the photo on the discogs and i was holding the same cd and i thought I don't see that in the layout, but yeah, it's underneath the it's underneath the CD case. That is, that's amazing. Yeah, that's I've crazy. never seen that. Thank you. That's, that's I, <laughs> yeah. We'll we'll definitely share that because that's a I that's have no funny. information regarding that. Jeff. Okay, fair enough. I I, I had a, a boxer at the time, so it wasn't my dog. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I thought it might have been you or Russ. Uh, it may it maybe Russ had a few dogs. I know he had a German Shepherd named Spike. So and that didn't look like a German Shepherd or like okay. Spike. Yeah. And uh, real quick bef before we wrap up to the hot tracks, you guys, you know, ever since 98 have kind of played on and off. I think the last time, I mean, you played as recently as the end of 2019, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, yeah. So underdog shows do uh, do still happen on, on occasion. They, they haven't for quite a while. They have not. Um, but yeah, there have been a few over the years i was there 2019 was the richmond show uh united blood yeah that our friend foster booked so oh yeah that was yeah oh wow i didn't know that was 2019 so yeah so there's never because yeah, you guys did one there's never been an official uh you did one in suburban philly right yeah yes yeah um Chamonix Creek. That's it. With Murphy's Law. Murphy's Law. Yes. Okay. I think that is that might be the last one. Was that? Yeah, that I think so. What? So, have your kids? Have they seen either into another or underdog? Both. Um, I, yes, they've seen both. Uh, in fact, on the last like into another mini tour that we did, they came to all the shows. My, my mm. um, nice. I brought my son to a. Uh, to an underdog show when he was like three or four. Um, 
but yeah, they've my kids have seen both bands. Which is what do they think? They think it's a they they love it. I mean, they absolutely love it. You know, my my wife makes them wear like like gun range big air uh yeah the um (laughs) but uh but yeah they they totally dig it um and if they come up on on stage and they're just they're just hearing monitors they don't have to wear that that stuff they just wear like earplugs but uh yeah no they couldn't they couldn't love it anymore they're just super stoked that's great so we have a special guest for the hot tracks um dave we, we just mentioned united blood we have dave foster he's uh one of the United Blood dudes, and he's an underdog super fan. And we thought we got to have this guy come on and uh, talk a little bit of underdog at the end. So Let's thanks, Dave. Foster, thanks for joining us. True, a true pleasure. <laughs> likewise, likewise. Absolutely. So you love underdog, right? Like you're the dude. Like Jason and I were like, who's like an underdog super fan? And Jason was like, Foster. First one that came to mind for sure. And that's yeah. your shirt. Your underdog shirt collection is top notch. I really have two that I'm really proud of. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, underdog has been a band that, um, since I was first introduced to hardcore, they were kind of a pinnacle band for me, uh, along with burn and, um, a few others. I was racking my brain earlier, Jason, when you texted me about this, about songs and moments and, thinking back to when I was first introduced and um, you know, it was actually bringing back some really great memories of like posi numbers uh, that show. And then um, I actually had been fortunate enough to see underdog play at Asbury lanes, um, which I feel like in uh, the Jersey shore underdog underdog is like uh, like the Beatles there, you know, it was just, yeah. Very, very cool experience, you know? Yeah, yeah. I love the Jersey Shore. Oh, me too. I mean, Jersey Shore is responsible, I think, for um, as far as, like, the love of underdog and the current hardcore scene. I think Jersey Shore has a big hand in that. Definitely. Yeah, they, they, as, they always treated me as a New Yorker very very well there. So, no, and, and of course, <laughs> Russ and Dean being from Belmar are, like, and yeah. like local legends um, yep. is the reason why in that whole – that whole strip of, uh, you know, United States shorefront. Yeah. Um, I love that. I, I had a one time Mark from floor punch drove me around Belmar and was like pointing to different like clubs and pizza places. And he's like, saw underdog there, saw underdog here. You know, it was very cool. It's, it's basically like, you know, being driven around Liverpool and, and learning about where exactly <laughs> who, who, has the, who has the better pizza, the Jersey shore or uh, New York. You know, uh, well, first of all, full disclosure, I'm a vegan, but I, but I do remember, uh, my, my days as a, as a non-vegan, I, you know, being a New Yorker, you know, with, with places that have been around, you know, since the early 20th century, like, you know, and, and places like DeFaro since so I, I, I would have to go with New York. I'm sorry. With, with all nice. of Fair. <laughs> it's fair. Uh, I just but, think of Michael Scott with the Sabaro, New York slice. <laughs> Classic. I digress. So, yeah, there's, lot, there's lots of total shit. You know, New York pizza, and, and we'll, we'll get back on track here, but it must be said. So. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like saying, you know, rock music. So, of course, 95% of it sucks, and 5% of it is is just absolutely phenomenal. That, that I, would, <laughs> I would apply those same percentages to New York pizza. So, 95% of it is 
complete dreck. But, you know, <laughs> if you take the creme de la creme of New York pizza versus anywhere else in the United Jersey. States. Yeah. Yeah. So was Alive and Well Fest the first underdog show back on the Jersey show? It was Yeah, I think the first show back was, was yeah, at Asbury Park. That Okay. I was that at that one. Sense. 98. That was the first yeah. reunion show. Awesome. It was just a, it was, you know, that I have to say, not to get nostalgic, but for me, like, which is funny because for you, I know 98, you're like, oh, I was already doing this for years and years. But for me, 98, like that whole era was just so incredible and so formative for me. Like that just even hearing, like looking at that alive and well lineup, it just brings back a lot of good nostalgia and Foster mentioning posi numbers. I mean, that was yeah. like, that, that was just like the time of my life. Yeah, Posse Numbers was insane. That was like the most euphoric, insane show. I mean, like, the, yeah, the energy at that show was just off the fucking charts. And it was one of those shows where, like, the band and the crowd felt like the same thing. And it was just like this undulating mass of humanity. It was super cool, yeah. That was the year in the big dome, right? The sports it like, dome. Yeah, it, looked like, it, was- it looked like an airplane hangar or something. Yeah, it was like this... Mm-hmm big inflatable airplane hangar. <laughs> there was the legend of uh, Matt Bold, someone throw a football up and he threw the football like the entire, like he was singing and he caught the football and then he threw it like the entire length of the hangar. He has an incredible <laughs> arm. Matt Knight. Bold. Who knew? Yeah. No, he was a contested version <laughs> so uh you want to do hot tracks now hoff i think it's hot tracks time yeah kick it who's All going right. first you want me just to get it out of the way do it yeah man go yeah. for it well now, explain it to foster what hot tracks is okay foster Talk to me. Talk have to you me, have you ever heard our podcast before it's okay if I, you haven't no i have but not complete just okay bits and pieces of certain so ones. So towards the end of each episode, we do a thing called Hot Tracks, where you kick your favorite song on the record. If you're in the band, it's like maybe your favorite song to play, you know, just your whatever your memories are. So we go around. And I think there's maybe only been one time where all three of us had the same one. Once or twice. We can't talk about it because it hasn't aired yet. Uh, Whatever. So anyway, (laughs) I'll kick it now. My Hot Track. Do you think you can guess what it is, Greg? I bet I can guess what it is. Yes, Jason, guess. I, I got it. What? Jason, on the count of three, we'll both say it at the same time. Okay, go ahead. One, two, three, without, without fear. Without fear. No. <laughs> it's mass movement. Ah. I love the reggae part at the beginning and then how it picks up into like almost a totally different song, but it's still enough to be one cohesive piece. Yeah. Um I love actually on this record, the reggae parts are my favorite parts of the whole thing. I, I think uh, I was going to save this for just us talking and maybe I still will, but the Bad Brains reggae stuff, especially on like Rock for Light, if there was a, an album that was just like that era of Bad Brains reggae, it might be my favorite reggae record of all time. It's so fucking good because it's not professional it's not like what i call dad reggae it's still got that like urgency of punk and i think songs like mass movement they capture that so that's my hot track wow i want to hear jason's mine i had a hard time because i love a lot of these songs but i went with underdog to me is a unique band because 
it's a tough band, but it's also a fun band. And I grew up skating and I love Frontside Grind. And the first time I heard it, I loved it. And when you played United Blood, I still loved it. It's just such a fun song. And I just love skating so much and that connection between skating and punk. So that's my hot track. But I also have to ask about the 43rd Street Sessions. So there were these brick banks on in Hell's Kitchen on West 43rd Street between 9th and 10th Avenue, I think, that I used to skate all the time. They were just these like short, steep brick banks with like cement at the top. And and I would skate and you had to get a lot of speed to get up there and really, because it's the it was this really just like chunky, crusty cement at the top. Mm-hmm. This and uh, but if you got enough speed, you made the loudest, craziest sounds just grinding these banks. And so um, they were one of my favorite things to skate too, because you'd, you'd have to really thrust yourself up there. They, they were steep and they were brick. And, you know, and, and I would always just try to grind as long as I could. And it would just make the sound. It would make everyone just get annoyed and turn and be like, what the hell is this kid doing? And, you know, and so, um, yeah, that was just, and it was kind of near where like my dad lived. And, and uh, so I found myself down there a lot and it was just a spot that no one skated no one knew about that i used to just always tear up so damn that's uh, awesome yeah it's just these little brick bangs. good question jason you, you kicked it that song has one of my favorite lines mom says you better be home early i say fuck that let's get surly i love that <laughs> yeah it's awesome <laughs> and actually like, that I, is and then when i sing that refrain i say burly instead of surly but yeah um, oh, okay yeah, so so um, that's a song, by the way, just going back to an earlier question, that was a Numbskull song before. Okay. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Awesome. Cool. So I'll go, I guess, and then we'll, we'll let our esteemed guests finish. Save the best for last. Kick it. Um, so for me, like my intro to Underdog, and we'll talk about more, like Hobbs said in the outro, but was the LP. So I'm partial to the 88 demo just because – I like, I like the LP so much. So it's tough because really any of these on this second side of the record could be a hot track, but I've got to go with um, a lot to learn. Like it has, uh, it kind of has everything underdog that intro, like when you guys open with that and it's just like people going nuts and the lyrics are great. It's a lot of lyrics too. Um, I commend you for being able to remember Cause I'm looking, I'm like, this is like, it goes like on the LP, it goes like halfway down here. And then like all the way here. I'm like, I never realized just how many, you know, there's like a couple verses and everything, but it's, and it's hard. Like Jason said, and uh great anti-racism song. And, uh, but just a fun song to be in the crowd and sing along. Right. Okay. Good choices so far. I have three. I can't name one. You got to uh, go one. All right. Well, my one is a lot to learn as well. Um, I just think that is like one of the hardest hardcore songs I've ever heard. Um, just the way it hits the relevance, uh, you know, 30 years later, lyrically, uh, really stand out to me. Even, even just in recent days, I think I posted a a photo of, um, one of my underdog tour shirts and, and quoted lyrics from a lot to learn in that um, because I, I, I think it really does still like completely stand up. Um, so I won't say my other, you know, songs, I think 
but I will say that, you know, say it's my face, um, like changed, uh, the way I looked at hardcore when I was younger. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just, I could go through a list of like my top 10, but I'll stick with a lot to learn. Wow. Nice. Does that mean it's my turn? Yeah. 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 Kick it. Wow. It's tough. Um, I have to go with one also. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's re- all right. So first, I'll 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 talk about a few before I land on one because I honestly sure. What? So so for me, lyrically, um, you know, <clears throat> I think the songs I, I poured the most passion into were a lot to learn and mass movement. And sadly, I think they are those lyrics are still. Um, topical i won't say they're relevant because they're ancient but they're but they are they are tragically and sadly topical i think you know there's um you know we're still a country rife with with racism and divisiveness and and hatred and 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 mass movement for me still resonates me you know i've always had an aversion to organized thought and um and sadly, I feel like even you know, I find my I find myself like a man without a country politically these days because even the people on sort of my side of the fence or whatever, even politically, have have adopted a whole kind of thought police, uh, you know, looking at everything through the same lens, kind of uh, you know, um, mass movement, if you will. That's that's highly intolerant of of free thinking or intellectual discourse. So those two songs lyrically are really important to me. I'm, I'm still not picking a song um, from, from just a straight visceral, like essence of underdog, you know, uh, for me, um, you know, say it to my face uh, musically, just that, that explosion and that, like, like that anger, that rage, um, you know, still, it feels very like essential, like, that's like just emotionally just the music the way it came out of me just as a riff and everything else and just the anger in that but also the kind of fun um not taking itself too seriously it's very essentially underdog that and true blue musically are that have the essence of underdog of the sort of hard side of underdog whereas mass movement musically has a lot of that 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 rage but it also has that you know that other dynamic and that that kind of reggae vibe. So I, you know, I'm I'm, I'm grasping, but I, I think if I had to just just like take one and own it as my as my hot track is that what we're calling this? This is called hot tracks plural. Yeah. I'm not selecting a hot track singular. Uh, I'm, <laughs> it's uh, plural because we all pick hot tracks. I'm, I'm you gonna, only get a hot track. I'm, I'm going to say mass movement because I think it, it on balance it just has all of the, you know a, a little bit of that 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 sort of essence of each component that makes underdog for me awesome man i think i yeah, listened to then this if we talked about the lp like i could pick a whole different hot yeah track that's true from, but but yeah. on since it's not on rev we I, I won't say how much i love the song from now on but that is an incredible <laughs> opening i that was like the first underdog song where i really heard it like because like i said i heard say it to my face but when i heard from now on i was sold Hey, yeah, we could do a sounds when it, we yeah. we could do a Patreon episode about Vanishing Point with Foster. I would just saying. I, I would love to. Yeah, and, Foster, if you want to come on. Yeah, 
I'd love to talk. Richie, about you're it. always welcome, of course. From, but from yeah, that on, record was uh, big. From now, on, from now on, it's super rad. That's a song. Russ wrote the music to that song, and I remember the first time I heard those chord changes and everything. I was like, "This is so fucking sick!" Like, I cannot wait to write a lyric on this. It's just like, yeah, that's a good one. That's good. Yeah, as someone who attempts to sing, like the way your vocals are on that and the and the patterns, it's like. What do they that, say? Chef's kiss. That's still, yeah, that's me attempting. <laughs> that's, still, that's still me attempting to sing. But yeah, um, it but sounds yeah, great. It's a good one. Yeah, it's like the perfect precursor, I think, to what you ended up doing a couple years later. So, okay, cool. Hell yeah, uh, Richie! I'm yeah. super glad you could join us again, David. Uh, great to virtually meet you, and uh, thanks for joining us to talk about yeah. Underdog. Um, this was a sick conversation. It was like nice and fun and cool. And Can I'm we glad we got to do this. Can you guys think of more reasons to talk to me? I'm kind of lonely. Uh, we got, <laughs> we got, uh, yeah, I think we got three more at least. Yeah, we got three more, right? We got, we got uh, Ignorus, Herbivore and, uh, Seamless. I'm so happy that, that Rev did the vinyl for Seamless. Yes. Cause there is no way. I could go on with life not having an episode about Seamless. Yeah, for real. Oh, and same with Hav. I have something to look forward to. I'll, I'll table uh, thoughts of suicide. <laughs> can, I ask, <laughs> can I ask one question while we have you here, though? For yeah. this one? Um, I, was researching some, I was researching, and I saw that you did the Warzone logo on the B side of the 7-inch. Yeah. Can you tell us about okay, doing I, that? I remember... Um, God, I, I think Jordan just went, and I, I think I wrote all the, I wrote the like side A and the song okay. and that stuff too. Um, yeah, that wasn't like a plan. I think that was just super organic. Like, I think Jordan was like, Hey, you want to, you know, do these labels or whatever. Um, okay. Uh, Decent, yeah, for, man. The, for the sevens. Yeah, that was, yeah. I'm not, I, and I also did the, uh, I didn't do the artwork for the underdog seven inch. Um, that was a combination of a guy named Matthew Solomon, who tragically very recently passed away. Um, he, he did the, the cover, but yeah. And, um, and uh, the, and the labels were Sean Taggart on the underdog, but I did, mm -hmm. the, I did the actual word underdog uh, with the guys with the, the spray paint cans and stuff. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. And that was just kind of an afterthought. I just took like a piece of acetate, laid it over, and then just wrote underdog on the walls if they had just, you know, tagged up the wall or whatever. Um, so that was a layer added to Matt Solomon's artwork. Okay. His artwork, so that artwork's so iconic for that seven inch. It's just killer. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. He was brilliant. He was a brilliant artist. Yeah. Um, did you do a lot of flyer artwork also? Cause there's that, there's that one flyer that's, I was going to ask if you drew it. It's the underdog circle jerk show with the car and it's got the skin. No, on no, top I, the I didn't draw that. I mean, I drew, I originally drew the, what became that underdog kind of face with the mean, you know, eyes and the smile, like the menace. Okay. Smile. Like that, that was actually a numbskulls thing. Um, that okay. <laughs> and you have that tattooed on you, Foster? Cool. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so that, that's a good rendition of it. So originally it didn't have the little, uh, the little, you know, um, uh any you know anything inside the eyes those were just kind of loops and uh but that started as a as a numbskulls logo um, okay yeah so that i did not draw that flyer with the car that is iconic and i i, I remember it. i don't remember who did it 
for me, the best flyer guy was always uh, this guy named Niels who did a lot of New York hardcore flyers um, that you, you'd recognize if you saw them. Um, he he was, and he was one of the original uh, who who they called the Shady Hades who did or who would do that like creepy crawly style moshing like he and Jimmy G and like Russ and stuff at shows at A seven. Um, he was one of those guys, and he did sick flyers. I, I did. I only did a few flyers by necessity, whether they were from my own band or if someone just asked me to like quickly just like bosh something together. I was not a great mm-hmm. artist at all, but um, but I did end up doing a few flyers, and I think maybe some of the shows that I booked at Pyramid when I was like just booking shows there, the other bands, the hardcore matinees, I did maybe some of those flyers. Stuff like okay. That. Jason had me Googling. Like he was mentioning the stuff. I'm like, I got to look. So I, I was able to see. <laughs> well, I that underdog question. circle jerks flyer, it has the, so there's like a hood ornament on the car that has that grimace face on there. Yeah. So that, that grimace got, you know, a million people did their own versions of it because it's something you can just do so easily. But I, yeah. originally, I originally created that for the numbskulls. And I, and the first time, and, and I was, I had been drawing that face you know, just on like loose leaf books and stuff. So it's, they it's, used it on this. This. Oh, yeah, there you go. The, I didn't realize they it's used on it on the go kart. I didn't until now put two and two together. Okay. I had. I did have one more question before you go. It's not sure. really to underdog though. You said you started going to shows in '81. Did you? Yeah. And I feel like we. I forget if we asked you this or not. Did you? Did you see Minor Threat then? Yeah, I definitely saw Minor Threat shows. But the first show I went to in '81 was was uh, Bad Rain Show at Maxis, Kansas City. Um, that had to be life-changing. It, it literally was. And at the time, I was playing in a band that was like a rockabilly, psychabilly band. So we were doing like, you know, we were like half cramps, half like Gene Vincent and the Blue Caps. And uh, so I wasn't doing anything remotely like hardcore. I had, I, I was always a, I was a fan of punk, um, you know, just having like older brothers and, and older kids. And, you know, si- since like the first Ramones record in 76, I loved punk. Um but I, but going to that show and hearing this loud, fast thing that was beyond punk, and 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 I had only heard "Pay to Come." I think at that point it was the only song I like knew. And and uh, crazy, it literally, yeah. It it. I remember standing there and just the way people moved and the way it sounded and everything. I was head to toe like goosebumps, just getting chills and absolutely, viscerally, tangibly markedly changed my life that show for sure so they, so i because i was asked like they were as good as everybody says probably better oh yeah we, I, we I, all got in you know i didn't see them until 19 no like 2000 or something and that's a whole different thing but like same with minor threat like minor threat was as good as i could imagine from watching yeah, the videos for me like, uh, yeah they were great but for for me the 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 two bands that really stood out to me as just like a live in live performance believe it or not, are the Bad Brains and Void. I remember Void shows where, like, I, I, can't, I, I can't even explain it. Like, you know, there's so many hardcore bands where you can't, seeing them live is such a different experience to listen, listening to the releases or whatever. Like, Void Live was such an intense band. Like, the vibe was, it was, you know, I kind of put it up there close to the the Bad Brains live. It's just it's. I was actually gonna. I was gonna be. I was gonna say. Did you see Void and and Faith was another one that. uh, Yeah, for me, I I liked I liked Void much more. Like even in that split, uh, you know, I I like Faith too. But but as as far as a live performance, 
Void were kind of untouchable. They were in that rarefied air along with a few other bands that lot, you know, meaning like Bad Brains, Black Flag, you know, just like, you know, there were a few bands that, that live, it, it was so intense. The air was just charged with like, you know, electricity from the moment they like walked onto the stage until the end. So like, I put Void in that, in that, in that group, believe it or not. Oh, I, yeah, I forgot. Yeah. Black Flag. Were you at the show then that uh, Dez was singing and then they had Henry? Cause I was in New York, right? Or was that maybe before where Henry came up and did Clocked In? Like that's like the legendary story of. Probably. I definitely saw the Bad Brains with Dez. Um, I don't remember if I was at that show. It's quite possible. Okay. A, few, a few like legendary New York shows. I remember I definitely was there. Cause like, I remember an, an incident or something like I remember seeing the misfits at, at Gildersleeves. And I also remember seeing the misfits at like weird high school gyms, like upstate, they would play like the weirdest places. Um, I definitely, you know, definitely. Rem- I, I saw minor threat. Yeah. A bunch of times. Uh, I saw, I remember going out of New York to like the rat in Boston to see like Boston hardcore bands play. I remember, I remember the shows where Boston bands were playing in New York and there was all this tension because it was like this rivalry and like, uh, so I, saw, I yeah, I saw SSD, DYS and, and all those bands and stuff. Um, That's awesome. I could keep you for a long time yeah. and I, I won't, but <laughs> it's just play. so, it's neat. It's neat to, to have like just as someone again who got into this stuff. And even when I got into Minor Thread, I was thinking the other day, like we talked about the passage of time. They'd only been broken up for like 10 years. You know, I got them in the mid nineties or whatever, but it seemed like they may as well have been like the Rolling Stones or something. Yeah. I know it's amazing. And now like decades just, you know, fly by the, the other thing, the other bad brain show I remember very vividly only because it ended up being documented in photography and, and stuff is um, I remember that, that bad brain show at the rock hotel where the, you know, because Russ and Ray Bees were working the stage, you know, that, that photo of HR basically like levitating. That's like my favorite photo. I remember that show vividly, very, very vividly. And, um, you know, and, and of course, and also because like my friends were working the stage and stuff. So that that's a bad range show, you know, obviously later on that really. Oh, uh, man, that was their first show back, too. I think they yeah, had yeah. broken it's, up and they the, got back. That's That was one where the energy, like the anticipation and the energy and like was, was off the charts. Like, yeah. Foster, you had a question? I have just a few quick, quick ones. I won't be long. It just like hit me and I just remembered, and you guys might've talked about it already, or maybe you didn't, but the filming, the movie that the Cro-Mags were in, there's just like um, a quick moment where I believe Richie, it was you. I was always told it was you that gets on stage and do the Arsenio and then stage dive. That is you, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's two, there's actually, I, I, I saw myself in two bits of footage. One is is that one, and I kind of like push some metalhead kid, and then I like dive or whatever. Yes. And another one was, um, I kind of like spill into the frame, like I, I do kind of like a somersault onto the stage. At that point, I think I'm not. I had, that was after I lost my blast shirt, and then uh, and then just like you know exit stage right further in the distance or something, dive off. Yeah. Um, but both I remember that was. Uh, in both instances, what they were actually playing there, and I don't remember what they ended up using it for in, in the film or whatever. I think they were filming a video for We Gotta Know, but I remember the, the points at which I was going off the most were when they played It's the Limit, because like that mosh part in It's the Limit used to make me just go absolutely <laughs> like bonkers. Like still. I, I think that's what is in the movie, is okay. them playing It's the Limit. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah and they like slow it down and there's like the kids caught in the mosh and then I just I'll never forget watching that part and my friends in Wilkes-Barre saying like yo that's Richie underdog and I was like whoa I kind of remember I remember that moment like I I remember getting on stage because I kind of like I remember this it's a limit like slowing down I remember doing like a like like bar dip on two people's shoulders to just like push myself up onto the stage and yeah I remember that oh that's an iconic moment for me that's Um, and I'm sure for you too um and then one thing like I've always wondered and like I I know your uh, background in like art and um but I always kind of like noticed in underdog pictures or videos or anything I've watched like your style was always like something that was super emulated by a lot of people but um most recently I noticed like a picture of you rocking Jordan fours. Um, and I was probably in like 89 or 90 or something. And then you always seem to have like super cool Nike basketball sneakers on, um, <laughs> which I connect with very deeply. And, and, um, and Adidas. I did, I did rock the Patrick Ewing's. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I was going to ask you like around that time, did you have athletes or teams that you were like diehard supporter of, or you really liked, um, um yeah, I mean, I was, you know, I, uh, well, first, I was never really a sneakerhead, so I, w- I would just, like, get what, like, was super comfortable to, like, you know, either be on stage in or skate in or whatever, and so I had, like, equal parts and fans and, like, sneakers, but I was never, like, the like the collector or sneakerhead guy, um, but, yeah, I mean, I grew up tragically loving sports fans that, that didn't win a lot of championships, you know, like, I was a Mets, Jets, Knicks uh-huh. <laughs> And also, I having a lot of uh, family in England. I, there were, I was also uh, there were a couple of English Premier League teams I kind of followed. You know, you have to pick one. But like even in my household, because I had I had people who who sort of came from the part of of, of England where a lot of my dad's family descended from, were came from sort of Greater Manchester, so they were Manchester United supporters. And then I had family that lived in North London who were Arsenal supporters. So yeah, so there was, a, there were a whole bunch of teams playing various sports that I supported. as far as like sneakers went. Um, I, I did, I always thought Jordans were, you know, pretty amazing. I, I even though as a Knicks fan, I was I hated often, him. <laughs> often my heart was broken by Michael Jordan. You know, I remember watching him eat up the Knicks on a few occasions. But I did uh, the other shoes. I own, I did own the kind of the James Worthy like uh, you know, New Balance, and mm-hmm. I had Patrick Ewing uh, Adidas. Uh, cool. yeah, those were my two departures from from Jordans. I called I called Walter the Michael Jordan of hardcore, and someone said that that was actually the worst thing I could have said since Jordan robbed the Knicks of so many victories. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> but I skated. I skated. I didn't follow sports at all. So Lord forgive me. So yeah. <laughs> on, on, a, on like a goat level, it makes sense. It totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was going for. So final, final question. Speaking of style, we always hear the, the rumors, you know, and I think he's even copped to it that Porcel says that he was the one that possibly invented camo shorts. Not even possibly. He straight up says it. I invented okay. camo. He said I invented cut off is it camo true? shorts. Is it true, Richie? And you may have even said it, that you were the first guy in New York hardcore to have uh one of these. That's absolutely true. That that's unequivocally true. I'm I'm going to support Purcell, and I'm going to say that he he was the first guy to wear. Coat. Nice. There's awesome. no and the, and, the ex, and, the, 
There's literally the X watch that I was. There's no chance that I wasn't the first guy to wear that. And the reason that is awesome. The reason one of the reasons is that I was. It was on my radar before it was available to the public because I. I at the time I lived on Thompson Street and there was a Swatch store nearby in Soho, and. I saw like some bit of literature or something behind the counter that had a watch with an X on it. And I was like, what? I was like, what is that? I, I want, they're like, it's not available yet. I was like, on what day and time is that? <laughs> I know that when I owned it, that it was not on any, I, I, I first of all, I had the, the instant it was available to the public, maybe even a little before because of my proximity to that it was a flagship store, but also, um, I didn't see those on people's wrists till for a very long time after I owned. That's great. Now, of course, when they asked you, when you asked what time, they probably didn't use this because I still can barely tell what time it is on this. Yeah, yeah. This watch. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, "Look at the digital clock yeah. on the wall." Yeah, optically, it's one of those. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Well, thank you. you. I had no idea. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank but you. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna back Purcell. He was the first guy, and, <laughs> and I'll also, I think I was the first guy to have custom off-the-wall Vans high tops because I remember ordering them when you couldn't get them anywhere um, in New York. And, and, I, and that's an item I didn't see on anyone else's feet too. So that's the only other thing I'll claim. Um, but there you have it. I love it. Thank you. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you. Guys. Yeah, thank you guys so much, both yeah, of you for joining. Yeah, David, it was great to meet you. And, and, and uh, yeah, this was, a, this was an honor. Did we kick it? We went too yeah, long. We kicked it. Yeah, no, we kicked it good. Hey, listen, <laughs> I I just want to say for, for a second, I was, uh, while you guys were talking about something with under underdog, almost said undertow, I was on eBay looking up, guess what my search words were on eBay just now, Jason? NYHC. That's the Vin- best one to search. No, no it's not. Vintage <laughs> reggae. Vintage reggae shirt. And what came up? Uh, there was some good stuff, but yo, I found a Screen Stars tag mint colored black Uhuru shirt oh, that nice. I would buy right now, but it's a Screen Stars large, and I just know. Don't do it. I'm not a Screen Stars large. I'm a Screen, screen Stars, Stars large. Extra so large is a small. Is a current day small. It, isn't yes, it? it is. I okay. think it, it's like a me. Uh, more like a a medium. It's, yeah, it's medium. It's too small for me. I think I can. Medium. Medium. It's definitely not a, even a medium. It's a medium. So yeah. I'm a Screen Stars XL, possibly even a 2XL. I, I hard to come know. by. Screen Stars are hard to come by in bigger sizes, like double X. I've seen some triple X ones that mm-hmm. probably fit like a, 
like a, a modern day, extra XL. large. Yeah, it's you know kind what? of nuts because you'll hear people say like, "Oh yeah, this is like a a '90s XL and it'll be big." And it's like, no, '90s like we as a well, as a, I think what they're thinking of in in terms of '90s XL would be like blind skateboards or, or world industries yeah. or something you know like those those blanks were fucking big uh Yo. so okay yeah. Yo, i'm go, going off it. on a t-shirt tangent no, do you remember it. when we talked about skateboarding though so yeah we it's did relevant kick it do you remember when skate shirts had that chunky collar that was almost like a mock turtleneck like yes. a lot of those new deal yeah. shirts had that and weird collar. uh stussy had i had some stussy like striped shirts that were like kind of starchy and tall yeah yeah for sure 90s that what years do you think that was 92 to like 94 maybe i should know my skate history a little better i would probably say 93 to 96 i don't know uh well okay if we're we're thinking like uh souls of mischief 93 to infinity that was kind of like almost the end of that like blind video days plan b era you know what i mean like new deal i feel like new deal blind world industries was more like 91 to 90 was it okay we're at the latest i could be wrong on all this but that's because i'm because i'm going i'm going off of when i was in high school if i graduated 95 i graduated 94 90 so 94 i'm a junior 93 i'm a sophomore 92 i'm a freshman so yeah. freshman sophomore for me 92 93 is you know there you could not find a size large shirt anywhere no forget it no yeah. it's extra large only that's all they yeah. had and that this that is in hardcore too greg so, what do you got kick it one, a couple questions yeah okay and, and people love this shit, so i don't care we got yeah. <laughs> Screen stars. What is it about screen stars? Do people just like screen stars well, because I, it was old, or is it like I think actually it's a great shirt? Two things. I think it's shirt. the legitimacy of if you have that tag, then you know it's vintage. Right. You know Not that anymore. it came well. Okay, so you can make vintage. You could yeah. make vintage-looking tags. You could boot like anything. Trust yeah, me. Yeah, a lot of I people. Know. I'm sorry to interrupt. A lot of people will screen print stuff on like an old stock tag yeah. and then resell it on ebay yes. for there, so you could find authentic you, money it's getting harder but you yeah, could is. find a blank screen stars shirt right now you could get some fucking fuller mo like <laughs> cracked <laughs> cracked looking uh, uh what do you call it uh layer <laughs> over it print it out yes. have your dude print it for twenty dollars and then yeah. sell this shirt for 350 it's possible but also i think some of those shirts were single stitch right jason yeah along along the bottom about the bottom hem so if you look at the bottom of your shirt right now greg there's two there's two hems almost right yeah and uh those vintage shirts there's only one now i don't know why that matters but that's just kind of like a marker of the time yeah because it's it 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 dates it for a lot of people and then that makes them feel that it's more authentic but i'm wearing this yeah. misfits arena tag shirt that's uh-huh. double stitch and it's also from the 90s so. right but and and so yeah when you when you start becoming a collector then you know the tag you know Dude. the way that it looks whatever yeah the useless the knowledge thing. that's in my head is just overwhelming yeah greg you're on mute you're on mute bro you're muting here's a, here's a question speaking on shirts. May as well, right? Yeah. Um, Dude, I'll go crazy on shirts. Go ahead. 
Do you do you remember the first band shirt you ever bought? Um, yes. No, no I don't. What was I it? do? The first band shirt I ever bought was the fucking first show that I ever went to put on DIY style, which was my bloody Valentine and dinosaur junior mm. on the green mind tour. And it mm. had tour dates in green on the back. Mm-hmm. And I've looked for that search on, I've looked for that shirt on eBay and my max bid was don't ever tell Catherine this $300. And I still did not win that shirt. What can you find that? I would love to see the design. It was, you, would you say it was DIY style? What, what was DIY? Oh, I mean, I mean, mean the like... show was put on at a college. It was at the university oh. of Alabama. Was this, so it okay. was like, was this a legitimate merchandise or was it a yeah. parking lot bootleg? Because I no, owned no, it was legit. in, in 92, I owned a dinosaur junior start chopping, maybe 93, a start chopping uh-huh. parking lot bootleg. That was sick. I bet that aged awesome. i it, no, because even okay. then it was a fucking SpongeBob shape, like <laughs> wide and short. You, you know short what I'm fat? talking about? A short yeah. fat, a short yeah. fat, dude. So and, mine that I remember, mine. Well, not that I remember. This is the first one I had um, when I was in fifth grade. I bought Nirvana Sliver. It was a black shirt and it had the 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 cover, you know, the blue and okay. like, purple like guy. And uh, it said Nirvana in the back said Sliver. At that point, I didn't even know the song Sliver. I just had okay. Nevermind. And um, <clears throat> then my I wore that. I mean, I literally would make my mom wash that every day. I would wear it like every other day. I would make my mom wash it. And then I would just wear it. And then eventually, after having it for a few months, it was like summertime. She she found, uh, she was like, do you want to try to bleach tie-dye? Ooh, and so, did like, you? Bleach dyed it and it came out nice. Okay. But see, when you bleach dye, when you bleach dye a, a shirt, it gets weaker, right? And it's like softer. And um, then I got in a fight with some kid and it, it ripped in the fight. Okay. And that was but that was the first shirt I ever had. But that's that like one, like you can still get like a version of that now. Yeah. Um, like even through their website, it looks like a little different. It doesn't look as cool. Like the font is a little different and yeah. I don't know. So I apologize. And I'm sorry for anyone that's listening that's tired of us talking about shirts, but I thought it was buying the shirt at the show. The first band shirt I bought was Anthrax shirt with the knot man on the front and the back said mosh it up. And it's got them like nice. moshing. But I was in middle school and I remember the girl behind me that I had a crush on said, um, yeah, I was talking to so-and-so and they didn't know what moshing was. That's so cool that you know what that is. And I was like, yeah, fuck yeah. I didn't know what moshing was. My first show, they didn't sell t-shirts. Okay. Oh, the Same. Fugazi show? One Fugazi. of my first. And I was just thinking, I did buy a parking lot bootleg at that uh, Fugazi show I went to. I think that it was uh, in April of 93. And I definitely bought a steady diet of nothing bootleg in the parking lot. And then eventually cut it up and put just the Fugazi logo on the back of a flannel. Okay. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I just, the shirt stuff's interesting. And I think about, it's funny now that, you know, the, I feel like right now the nineties are just like in the, in the nineties, everyone was all about the sixties. Like there was that level of sixties nostalgia, whether it was like psychedelic stuff or the Beatles. I mean, the Beatles are always popular. Right. But, um, and now it's nineties. What? 
Beatles shirts don't sell for that much money. Well, Beatles shirts, but I mean, yeah. just in general. But like mm-hmm. a vintage Beatles shirt, like it doesn't really go for as much money as you would expect it to. That's Jason, really? how much yeah. would an original underdog shirt go for right now? Oh my God. How much would I hope it would go for so I could purchase it? Or how much would it go for? How much would it go for? Uh, I was watching one that someone tailored from an extra large to a small, which is uh, always like, ah, oh! so like you cringy. read the description and you're just like, ah, oh, no. Yeah. But I think that one went for uh, $195 to $200. And it was for the seven inch, uh, the underdog on the front that Richie was talking about how he drew. Yeah. The label and then the seven inch artwork from Matt Solomon. The chain on the back, the guy with the chain on the back. But like I think about all the shirts I had in the '90s of like you know, because I got into first like alternative stuff, like and now how much money they would be worth. Like I had like Dinosaur Junior, Where You Been, sure, sure, and yeah. Sonic Youth, the bomb pop one, anywhere from five hundred to fifteen hundred dollars, depending on who lists it and the conditions. Yeah. Sonic Youth, the dirty one, the green $100. one with the dirty on the sleeve. Yeah, so it's. It's crazy, but enough shirts. We should just do a bonus episode about shirts. Just I would us. do a bonus episode on shirts if I thought it would be fun and interesting, <laughs> but we've also gone on for... <laughs> yeah, someone's like, bonus episode. Anyway, if someone has an underdog shirt, I actually don't have a. I don't have an underdog shirt from the uh, Vanishing Point Tour if anyone has one that wants to, to come off it. What's that, 89? The 89 Tour shirt? Yeah. Yeah. There's someone from Iceburn's wearing it in the promo photo. Yep. Yes. Okay. Sorry about that. That's so. okay. Uh, you know what? We're talking about hardcore. We're talking about underdog. This is all. It's it's all good. You know what? Uh, something else that it's kind of merch tangential that Richie touched on was ordering the custom vans. Yeah. And and so growing up, being a teenager in Orange County before I was old enough to drive, my mom. I don't know how. Either I, I think I find out, found out about it and I convinced her to take me. There was a Vans outlet store in Santa Ana, California, which was kind of out of the way, not a super nice part of town, but it was the store where you could order custom Vans from, I don't know how, because there wasn't a website, but you would order custom Vans. And then if they weren't picked up, they would end up at this store. So there was like, fucked up colors like green like chucka boots that were like bright green and checkerboard or like you know the the low top ones that were just like burgundy uh corduroy with yellow like just some fucking weird and uh so i remember going there a few times this had to have been again like 91 92 and um bless my mom for for taking me to these she took me to the vision streetwear uh, warehouse. Oh, wow. A couple of factories sales. And I won a drawing once and I won some cow print high tops from vision. Dude, I remember those it had the, the Ollie, you know, the yeah. rubber Ollie guard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I owned those and they just did not go with anything. <laughs> they were so fucking ugly. But the other cool thing about the, again, to tie it into this underdog talk, you could buy packs of stickers and we would just buy a pack of Mark Gonzalez stickers for like a dollar that would get you like 30 or 50 stickers. And you would just fucking slap them up all over town. It just, yeah, it was, that was a really cool time to be into skateboarding and to be into all that, like weird experimental new 
fashion. So it was really cool to hear, hear Richie talk about all of the ties to skateboarding. I'm super regret. Don't I, I one time was going to buy a lot of Thrasher skate rock cassettes on eBay okay. and I just didn't do it. And now they're just, it's really hard to find those tapes on eBay. Give you. Yeah. LFM man. But, um, <laughs> those tapes had some fucking hits, man. Especially that oh, one dude. that we we're talking about on this episode, the noise forest one, that lineup that's on there. Even if those were not like unreleased tracks or whatever, just to hear that compilation all in one place, like the um, in-flight uh, in-flight program or whatever, you know, just to pop that in. And it's like someone just made a mixtape for you of all these bands and maybe some bands that you'd never heard before. It's cool. They should do I, it on uh, vinyl. I don't think that they have those on vinyl, but there's I a, think there's a couple, there's a couple of skate okay. rock comps on vinyl. Not that one though. Not, not that one. No, I want to say like maybe only like th- volume three or something fucking weird like that. Okay. Yeah. Thrasher, Thrasher magazine too would always have like, cool features on bands yes um like hardcore bands like yes. the first Mouth, time i ever mouthpiece mouthpiece, yeah. mouthpiece. Yeah. danzig um first time i ever read about earth crisis was in thrasher magazine i oh, mean nice. they're they're still up on it though i mean they're still yeah. do i have relevant sub- bands now uh past three years we've had a subscription to thrasher my kids are into it and i i get the free shirts i'm like you guys don't get the fucking free shirts i'm getting the free shirt oh nice actually and, um, I'm sorry. They did it. They did a write up on Brandon Farrell that passed away from direct control. And I thought that was the shit. Mm. So bit of boat a thrasher. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I, I always thought skating was cool. I, I wasn't a skater. I, I don't have the coordination. I can barely walk without tripping. So like, it just wasn't, I did BMX. Oh, poorly, nice. But like uh-huh. I was in more into BMX, like would ride, you know, try to ride off ramps and, things like that but um i recognize the importance of skateboarding and how it's related to punk and hardcore so i have nothing but respect and um because think of how many of these stories we talk to people where they're like well i was into skating and then i got yes and really thrasher thrasher specifically huge part of that and very important but you know we watched skateboarding turned from punk into hip-hop turned turned from this dangerous underground rock thing into polo shirts and like you know the hieroglyphics and souls of mischief and all that stuff and i think personally i think that plan b had a huge uh hand in that because of them coming from san francisco or like a lot of those guys being in and around san francisco and and central cal maybe whatever wherever they were geographically located that's what i saw with the questionable video specifically really turned to like oh this isn't punk anymore yeah Yeah. and i feel like part of me is still trapped in that mentality that like oh you see a skater kid like they you know if they see like because you know like i live in a neighborhood where there's skaters all over yeah because we have a skate park and um ambler skate shop was like the hub and i think they moved actually to a bigger location in town but so like you could go and get like thrasher t-shirts and and whatever and so we have the skate park and i you know i'll walk around my neighborhood or around the loop 
And if it was 1995 and I was wearing like a Gorilla Biscuits t-shirt and there was kids skating, you know that like I'd be making some, you know, or at least having a conversation. You'd be getting some head nods. Yeah. Like, like we say to Jason, like you go to Kroger and you're wearing, you know, a Gorilla Biscuit shirt and you get somebody head nodding. But now it's like, and I'm not trying to. It could be anything now. They could be into psychedelic rock or they. I'm not trying to sound like old man yells a cloud. No, I don't. I'm not old man yells at cloud, but it's just weird to me. That's different. Cause in my head, I see a skater and I think like, Oh, like they're going to put, you know, my like operation Ivy or minor threat on the boom box and skate. Yeah. I'll go yeah. by. And it's like, you know, whatever juice world. I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing though. I just think it's, it's not, just, it's just, yeah. It's it just moved on. And now different. skating is a little more all encompassing. Yeah. It's in more of a, like an amalgam of it. Could, you could be anything. And, and it's the same take, thing with yeah. culture in general. You know, there's so many genre bending things like this artist that I really enjoy called Ghost Bane. Some of it sounds like Bone Thugs and Harmony and some of it sounds like fucking Florida, like slam metal. You know, it's okay. like could be fucking anywhere. And, you know, you could walk down the street in 1993 and if someone had a tattoo, you, there's a good chance that they were into, if not punk or hardcore, at least Red Hot Chili Peppers or something. And, <laughs> and now... You know, you you look at someone and you're like, oh yeah, that guy looks like a hardcore kid, but they're just not yeah. at all. Yeah, they're just not at all. And it's yeah. it's uh, it is it's it's all encompass. I mean, they have kids get like skateboarding lessons now. I don't really think skate that dogs. Was, we have that, that here. Thing? Is it called skate was that dogs? A thing skate in the nineties, in the eighties, no. huh. not at all. Like no, you want to learn how to skate, you fucking grab a skateboard and yes. put your wheels in a crack until you learn how to ollie. Yeah, yeah, Richie kind of talked about it. I mean, skating was kind of an annoying thing that to a lot of people, it wasn't like a thing that everyone encouraged. It was more like a get a, get the fuck off my curb and, and, and I think of, off my stairs or whatever. I think what he talked about, it, it almost like I could never pinpoint what was different about, you know, punk and hardcore now compared to, you know, when we got into it in the 90s, what to speak of, you know, people like Richie that, or you know, pretty much almost there from, from the ground zero. Yeah. And it is the accessibility and it's not, it, it teeters on and, and Richie didn't come across this way either. You don't want to be a gatekeeper. No. At the same time. I do think it's so different because it's a level playing field. Everybody has access. Yeah. So theoretically anybody can stumble onto, you know, punk and hardcore or even like, you know, Spotify, they could, be listening yeah. to green day and then it you know green day radio might play uh you know like we mentioned the operation. descendants they might play operation ivy or yeah. the descendants and then and it's cool it's sort of like you know akin to you know people that would listen to like college radio or whatever but something is lost i think uh but that makes me feel and sound old. Yeah. Um, there's something that's fine. lost when you have to work hard to find this stuff. Like I didn't, it wasn't really necessarily an easy thing to even get the underdog demos CD. Okay. So when I was a kid and I was thinking about this yesterday, underdog records were fucking expensive already by yeah, 1994, 1995, that seven inch was already a 30 to $50 record you're on correct. the wall. And yeah, so no. it was hard for people like me to consume that stuff until the demos came out. And by that time I was like, 
this is not into another. <laughs> well, I didn't until the because uh, the go kart uh, reissue of uh-huh. they reissued uh, they did a campaign where they did um, underdog vanishing point and token entry Jaybird and from uh, from beneath the streets mm. and that was how I heard all of those because it was on a CD. Mm-hmm. Okay, but yeah, it is. It's 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 just weird to me that a kid can now get into hardcore and day one they could theoretically have a playlist that has everything essential that you would ever need but it's also cool because they have a lot more 2021 now you have over 40 years of hardcore to dig through whereas like we had like 10 years to go back or something which is funny because i always thought of it like and i think that you said this I mean, even though it was just by a handful of years, it felt like an eternity that I missed out on seeing a I ton know. of awesome bands. Yeah, like I, I got into Gorilla Biscuits in 1995. They they played their last show only three years before that. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. but it may as well have been another century when you're 14. But So when was the first time that you heard this though? The Underdog Demo CD? Or was the first exposure, the in-flight comp? So it was in flight comp and I got to say, uh, and I th- say it to my face did not immediately grab me. Um, I was more in, into an, into, into another, into, into another. Yeah. Um, that was actually the first time I think I listened to into another as well. Um, Cause that came out, I was like 15 or 16, you know, I knew gorilla biscuits youth of today and that stuff. But um, then when they reissued the LP in 98, was when I got underdog and then I was like, okay, cool. And demos again, like you said, Hav was hard to find. I think it was already out of print. And I remember getting demos finally when I was a freshman in college, uh, I got that and super touch LP. So I always mm. underdog and super touch to me seemed to go hand in hand because they, they just have that similar vibe where they were, maybe not necessarily trying to sound like uh, SSD and DYS, like, you know, youth of today was or whatever. It was more like the bad brains and uh, scream and, and that kind of stuff uh, with a little bit of hip hop style and uh, you know, an underdog's case, the dub. Yeah. And you just had two of the coolest I said before, Richie and Mark Ryan, they are like the dudes that, you know, they were the cool dudes to me. Like, I was just like, these guys are fucking cool. The way they dressed, the way they, their stage presence, their style, the sneakers, everything yeah. was just on point. Yeah. And I can't I, believe that Richie on the cover of that, you know, the iconic picture with Zach. It was almost an accident. Is literally the equivalent of, oh, this old thing. Like, yeah. he just like threw the shirt on, you know? Like, yeah. we're all like, we're all like, this is sick. He was wearing a tie dye and he's like, oh yeah, you know. And it, that's what's so cool because he just like he slid into it like a like an old shoe. Yeah. Agreed. You gonna kick it? No, I was oh, okay. I was hoping that I wouldn't have to do any edits on this episode, but looks oh, like I'm gonna have shit. to. I had a, <laughs> shit. I, I had a child asking me when I'm gonna come up and say good night. I'm gonna leave that oh, in. Okay. I'm gonna leave yeah. that okay, in. Okay, fair, hey, fair it's enough. Fine. Jason, yo, why don't you tell everyone what we got next episode? Next episode, we're gonna be doing statue filter the infection. I am 29. Stoked 
on that. I'm stoked. I just want yeah. you to know I'm stoked on yeah. filter the infection. I yeah, always say too. this, and I probably said it like three times in the interview too. Top five, one of the top five rev records for me. It's a great record. Yep. It's great. It's yep. great. Looking forward to it. Hob, what's your other what's your other four? Or uh, is it on the spot right now? And uh, too I, much. I, if I if so I had to, okay, so yeah, it changes a lot. We might have to just do a bonus episode for okay, this because enough. there's got to be parameters. Like I'm with you. If it has a rev star, does that count? Or is it like do reissues yes. count? You know what I mean? Because we're not in this alone. <sighs> we're not in this alone. To me, is like maybe for me, my favorite hardcore album of all time. But it's technically a reissue on Rev. So does that count? I, I say no. I got out of it. Oh that. my god! But so, but so I did the no echo uh, uh -huh. piece. Me and Hav. Yeah. I picked. I tried to pick only full lengths. Uh huh. So I, my, I took the parameters so that I could uh, only full lengths and no reissues. So break down the walls is out. We're not in this alone is out. So mine's Seamless pretty be steady. Out. Seamless would be, would be out. out. To me, it was a major. So I, I chose Gorilla Biscuits in Texas as a reason. I've said a million times. They're basically tied for number one for me. Judge is like maybe even a third tie. Sensefield Building and... Um, Super Touch LP, but also uh, into another Ignorus, I would definitely throw as a contender in there. Yeah. You know, I completely forgot that we did that uh, piece on No Echo. So if you're listening to this, go on noecho.net and search where it went um, or Greg Pollard or Javier, and you'll have a full interview where we talk about our like why we started this podcast and then we talk about some of our favorite stuff um yeah and that was right when jason joined because i remember he's like ah just you guys do you know because it was like right we had just done i think we just did the way it is we just did the way it is. that was the first one i talked on and it was the way it is and I say talked mentioned. by yeah. 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 So Greg, on that one, your favorites are start today. Do you know who you are? Bringing it down, building and the earth is flat. Okay. Oh, so that's I, what you said. There you go. Yeah. Mine Stuck were mine were bringing it down, burn seven inch, filter the infection, ignore us, and perfection of desire. Solid. I that's feel a good, like good list. It is. It's solid. I feel like my runner up in that, my number, my number six place would be since by man. Mm. we sing the body electric and then also him yeah, so him so death is infinite let's real i was gonna say if i if we were doing some of the more underrated yeah ones yeah um i would go for you know shades apart seeing things mm -hmm. would be up there um and our far side underrated like rigged i mean that's another one like is that even underrated it's i don't it's, think so it's, people it's really rated were, it's rated. Yeah, people were pumped on that episode. Rochambeau, that was a big one for a I lot mean, of people. Rigged. Um, and then if there's, you know, that's why we do the podcast because there's so many good ones. Like I was like, oh, Inside Out or, you know, Bold 7-inch, Chain. Yeah. So much, so much gold, so much it's time. <laughs> <laughs> so... But yeah, we, we'll have to do maybe a, uh, we'll have to do like, you know what we should do? We should have one where we have a uh, Bedge and Zach. Oh, that would be great. And do like 
do like a super seven, but albums, super not seven. songs. Yeah. So they do the songs. We should do that. Records. We could do the records. Mm. All right. Well, we will see you next time with Statue Filter the Infection. Don't forget to check out uh, the Where It Went Instagram, where you can find information on ordering the spring break shirt. And if you're listening to this into the future, you're just going to have to live with the FOMO of possibly not acquiring one of these shirts. And that's yep. it. We'll see you and next all time. I'm gonna, yeah. All I'm going to say real quick yeah. is spring break. Spring I'm not going to give any specifics, uh-huh. but our patrons definitely got taken care of with uh, these shirts. Sure did. Sure and, did. And I'll leave it at that. So if you want to be a patron, you definitely are usually the first to know about stuff. And there's definitely other perks that there's perks. aren't aren't written down. Membership has its privileges. As there you they go. Say. Well said. Yes. All right. So, we'll see you next time. Bye. Later. Bye-bye. It's so creepy when you say it like that, Greg. I had to edit it out <laughs> of one episode. You're all, Did he say, bye. I do it on purpose. <laughs> <laughs>up everybody this is javier from the where it went podcast just wanted to give a special bit of bow to our top tier patrons billy tonnell brandon gavell bram hubble brian skiffington brooklyn cesar falcon chad keplinger david palmer dirk focused g jason head greg jackson jeremy holohan john cowell quiet keith logan weasel nate of head to wall fame rob moran tim shear siren records Dollar Slice Bootlegs, and the Northwest Hardcore Archival Project. Check us out on www.whereitwentpodcast.com for more info on how you can become a patron and help us out every month. Bidibo!